are live. Welcome, folks, to episode 3,431 of the Survival Podcast. Today is a Wednesday. That means it's interview day. I have one of my favorite people in the green room right now waiting to bring him on, Stephen Reisner from Potent Ponics. We're going to be talking about natural farming, aquaponics, and artificial intelligence today. And I know there's a segment of my audience that's just like, AI, it's the devil or whatever. No, we're going to talk about doing something very specific with artificial intelligence today, a project that Stephen's been part of that is pretty flippin' amazing. But we're also going to talk about, again, natural farming, aquaponics. And I've got to tell you that there are very few people that I've sat on a discussion panel with in my life and thought, gee, I hope what I have to say is good enough sitting next to this dude. Steven's one of them. He's just an amazing guy. His depth of knowledge is extreme. So hang on, strap in today, guys. We are going to have a great one. Before we do that, let's hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Start9 Embassy Servers. I don't know if you've noticed, but it seems like there's this entire intention of the powers that be to use technology instead of for us, against us, to censor things to monitor and track everything that we do, down to the fact that they're literally intercepting and archiving conversations you have with your grandma on instant messenger. If you don't think that's true, you had your head under a rock somewhere. What if you could make it all go away? What if you could do things like run your own Bitcoin node, run your own Bitcoin lightning node as well? What if you could do things like set up end-to-end fully encrypted uh, text messaging with the people you want to communicate with, and there was nothing anybody could do to stop it, to intercept it, to find it, or to record it because you completely controlled it on your own server. Does all this sound like geek talk that you can't do that's too hard to do? Follow instructions and use a smartphone, then you can run a Start9 server. It really is that easy. Take your technology back with Start9 Embassy servers today, and remember They do a discount of 9% for the MSB. These are not inexpensive devices. That discount will pay for your membership several times over. Next up today, you guys know I'm big into Bitcoin, but I've also always had a special place in my heart and in my own uh, uh, portfolio for precious metals. I stack silver and gold. And when I'm going to buy silver and gold, I go to JM Bullion. I know it's easy to understand why I would do it. They pay me. They're my sponsor. Yeah, they do. And they've been my sponsor for 10 years. That's loyalty, and I tend to be loyal to people who are loyal to me. They also do a discount for my MSB members, and I have the uh, president available. I can get directly in touch with the president anytime I want if there's ever a problem. I ain't had to do it in like five years, but it's available to me. I've had other silver and gold uh, dealers come to me, and I've basically just told them, no, I've got the the horse that I want to run with. You know, If you're not going to do all your shipping for free, if you're not going to do a discount for my members and you're not going to give me your CEO's personal contact information, we don't need to talk because we already got some of it does. So remember that when you're stacking silver and gold, JM Bullion is the place for you to go. With that, I want to bring our special guest on, Stephen Reisner. Stephen, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast again. Though I checked and I, I thought because maybe because we've done some stuff together I didn't realize it was like over a year ago the last time I had you on, man. So welcome back. It's overdue. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to come on. Uh, I had an absolute blast down at your workshop there a couple months ago, and uh, I'm really excited to be back. Yeah, I've seen a lot of flamethrower videos circulating around <laughs> after you got your hands on the flamethrower on Barter Blanket. We can only say so much about that because what happens on the blanket stays on the blanket. But uh, it was a blast, and... 
before actually, I want to before we dig in, can you tell people a little bit about your background for people that maybe have never heard of you before? Uh, who is Stephen Reisner, and how did you get into this world of growing uh, food, growing cannabis, doing this all with fish? You have the Growing with Fishes podcast, natural farming. How did you become exposed to all this? Sure. So I grew up uh, in North Philadelphia. Um, my grandparents had a two acre, the only two acre plot in the whole neighborhood, you know, one of those weird corner lots that's a little bit bigger than the rest of them. And the whole backyard was, um, was a one acre uh, organic farm. My grandparents grew up, you know, before the depression and during the depression. And we would make our own pesticides, herbicides, you know, we'd pick nightshade leaves and steep them to kill the Japanese beetles. We'd, we'd go and have, uh, clip all the willow trees to make cloning gel so we could clone the tomatoes and peppers. You know, we were doing a lot of these different things that are now considered to be like, you know, natural farming techniques and things like that. that that's how I learned to farm. You know, we didn't use any chemicals back, back when I was a kid. So that's how I first got into farming. And then um, I really got into the aquarium trade for a while which I'm very passionate about, saltwater and freshwater aquariums. Um, obviously, after a while, it starts to, to overlap with uh, some of your other passions in life. And then I got into ca the cannabis trade. I'm working in the pet trade as well. And, uh, you know, when you have a lot of these different resources and knowledge bases, you start to combine them. And um, I ended up working for a pretty large landscaping company in, in, uh, in my 20s um, back in Pennsylvania, in fact, one of the oldest was managing all their greenhouses and things like that. I got to train under someone that had, you know, decades and decades of experience. Um, and uh, uh, shout out to Paul Senior and um, over at Bloodgood, uh, really, really good guys over there and uh, in uh, Horsham, Pennsylvania. And um, that really kind of helped me get along more on the commercial side. And then uh, in 2010, I moved west to work in the legal cannabis uh, field. And um, after about two years of that, ended up having the floods happen. Anyone that lived through that in Colorado knew how horrible the floods were. And uh, the whole back wall of the grow I was operating and got, you know, bashed in with mud and the whole facility was destroyed. So uh, I ended up getting a job at the aquaponics source because they needed someone to help their um, product development and uh, in their research and development lab. And then I ended up heading up both their um, uh, high high value crop uh, research as well as all of their cannabis research, which was a lot of fun uh, for uh, up until 2016. And then I started my own company called Potent Ponics and I've since traveled the world. I just got back from living in Thailand for over a year. Uh, I learned quite a few new tricks over there. Um, so uh, I've lived in Africa. I lived in the Caribbean. I uh, spent time in South America. So I've had a chance to go live in these different places, learn a bunch of different natural farming methods on site, uh, you know, from the locals that are already experts on it. And, um, and it really, they kind of help me, you know, pick and choose really what is the best way to go for these different methodologies. And I've done everything from 750 acre farms uh, in, in Zimbabwe uh, to, you know, commercial cannabis facilities to vegetable facilities in the Bay Area and, and, and everything in between. So um, really have a, a large depth of knowledge. And I've seen a lot of weird stuff that, you know, a lot of people haven't seen when it comes to uh, pests and molds and diseases and other things as well. <laughs> could you uh, could you define for people that are listening to us today what we're talking about today when we use the term natural farming because that's a term that could be quite subjective. Like some people would just say if you're farming without chemicals, it's natural. But we're talking about a specific discipline here today. So can you explain that? Sure. So most of the work that we're referring to today is is derivative of Korean natural farming, which originally, which is a bit misleading because it originally started off in Japan, um, <laughs> and, and and a lot of their sustainable methodologies, and then later was um, kind of refined a little bit by Master Cho uh, up in South Korea, and he wrote kind of the Bible uh, on um, that, that Korean natural farming and. 
that um, people kind of don't really say Korean natural farming so much anymore just because there's so many other cultures that have similar methodologies or that we're now taking bits and pieces from to combine to make it. So it, natural farming is kind of um, a, a better terminology for it. But basically the, the idea is to utilize microbes, fungi, and plant inputs from your property in order to create the inputs and pesticides and herbicides or whatever uh, solution that you need utilizing microbes instead of chemical inputs. So, uh, for instance, um, I know you're a big fan of IMO. Um, you, you know, you talked about that uh, when we were on a, a panel yesterday over at, uh, at Matt Powers, our future event, which you had a wonderful talk on. Uh, I had a great, t- uh, great time listening to your bioreactor talk yesterday, and uh, uh, it really is a, um, a, a really wonderful methodology to kind of help people make better use of their 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 property. But also, you know, when I was over working in Zimbabwe, these people don't have money for fertilizers or they're spending all of their income on fertilizers and pesticides rather than just sourcing it from their property. You know, and a lot of people in the United States can do that same thing. You know, they, a lot of these ranchers and stuff can can get be much more efficient. If you have access to these types of knowledge and can start to combine, you know, the wonderful sets of resources you already have on your, your farm, ranch or property and, and start utilizing them uh, in ways that people never even realized before. You know, you have all these locked up nutrients on your property already. You have many plants that are really good for, for pesticide and, her- and herbal use. You can you can utilize the fungi in, in the ground in your forested areas as pesticides you know we, we i did a, 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 a which people can check out on your channel um we have the wonderful talk from the workshop which is on there and we have a, a how-to on there as well so these are all different resources that we kind of refer to collectively as natural farming basically not using those those chemical inputs whenever possible yeah and i think there's there's something to that because i think part of the issue is because we're talking about microbes it's not something people see so it's easy to overlook when you don't see something. And what I mean by that is if you looked out your back door and leaning up against your fence was a shovel and you needed to dig a hole, well, you wouldn't get in the truck, drive down to Home Depot, buy another shovel and come home and dig the hole. You'd use, unless it was broken, you'd use the shovel that was sitting right there. Well, we have all of this biology available and we have tons of nutrient. Uh, you mentioned my talk. One of the things I said yesterday is, the average farm has 40, and this is conventional, like abused, right? And this is worst case scenario, 40 years, 40 years of um, phosphorus locked up in the soil. But they're going to go buy, you know, 100 pounds an acre from the fertilizer dealer this year. They're going to dump it on the field, and they're going to get about 10 to 30% that they get. So for every, for every 1,000 pounds they buy... They pay for a thousand pounds. They're getting a hundred to three hundred pounds of results out of it, and there's forty years of it locked up in the the key to opening it. And even in the worst places, there's biology available. We just need to cultivate it and work with it. Absolutely, and that's a great point too. You know, uh, if you already have a conventional farm, you're having problems with things like mold. Uh, mil, you know, botrytis, pythium, septoria, you know, these are common issues that corn farmers, wheat farmers, um, you know, uh, 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 barley farmers all run into on a regular basis. And it's because there's no microbiology in the soil. There's nothing to stimulate those plants immune system. The plant doesn't know what a fungi is except for the one time it comes and attacks it. 
If yeah. it has these beneficial microbes in the root system, then it can have a baseline to defend itself. It knows what these microbes are, and it knows that not every single one of them is, is pathogenic, or the, the non-pathogenic fungi actually can create exudates, which can then kill your pathogens. If you have a healthy fungal system in your root system, you're never going to have you know any kind of fungal problems because the exudates, basically the, the waste material from the healthy fungi, are going to kill off the bad fungi. And also, it, you know, the more you do these types of methods, the less chemicals you, ha you, you even have to even consider using because nature is going to automatically take care of this kind of stuff on, all on its own. And that's really what um, I'm super passionate about with this project with Copyleft Cultivars. And, and which is the AI that we first debuted actually at your event was the first time we ever showed mm -hmm. it off to the public, which was really exciting is to kind of democratize this type of information and, and basically make it super simple. Someone can punch in, you know, exactly what their dimensions of their garden is, what the crop choices are that they have, and then ha get an answer that, you know, doesn't require you to learn it for four or five years before you're, you're really good at it. It'll immediately say, okay, well, you live in you know, uh, Southern Oklahoma or wherever it is that you're at. Um, here's some, a bunch of plants that, that can work really well for you. Or you can say, Hey, I want to specifically use invasive plants. Cool. You can put those invasive plants to work as fertilizers and mm -hmm. immediately, um, you know, have a really good reason to go chop it all down or have a good reason to take it from your neighbor's property and, and put it to work on your own farm. So, this is the kind of stuff that we really think can help democratize this type of knowledge and, and really help reduce the overall costs for farmers worldwide, not just in the United States, but but globally. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why we're really excited to have so much language um, into this program. It already speaks over 130 languages, so people can ask it, you know, even different dialects of different languages if they're trying to educate themselves or teach other people, you know, if they're doing missionary work or they're out trying to, to teach other people um, how to, um, you know, uh, improve their own local area while they're out uh, visiting a certain place, you know, they can do all that in an afternoon with something like this and, and you know, completely change people's lives. And it's something I'm extremely passionate about and I'm very happy to be part of it. Um, Copyleft Cultivars originally started as a, a way, there was a huge controversy in the cannabis industry where there was a company called Phylos that kind of tried to illegally patent a whole bunch of the different cultivars and then say that they were the ones that had the rights to use it. Well, it doesn't work that way. First off, um, anyone that knows anything about plant patents, you have to get everything to at least an F7, usually an F11, um, meaning you have to back cross it seven times or 11 times for those that are a little less familiar with um, uh, plant cultivation. Uh, and uh, uh, in order to get a patent, well, uh, with cannabis, it's a little bit different because of the, the legality and things like that. So there was this huge controversy uh, and a whole bunch of legal stuff that went down. Um, the end result was the original company that was designed to try and preserve the genetics ended up getting caught up in that lawsuit. So uh, a bunch of friends of mine started this new group called Copyleft Cultivars, which basically uses the Copyleft um, uh, open source uh, uh basically patent platform for software by t and then ties genetic sequences to that in order to allow us to um, preserve uh, uh, plant genetics in the um, uh, open space so that they can't uh, open source space so that they can't be patented by Monsanto or, mm. you know, any of these other giant companies. And it's something that's great because, you know, if there's people listening today and they have a, an heirloom tomato or cabbage or some other specific thing that their grandparents have been growing for a long time and they want to make sure that doesn't get, exploited by you know corporate interests this is the type of group and uh, that can actually take that genetics and preserve it for you in perpetuity on the blockchain in a public ledger in an open source software format to, to prevent that from ever 
being exploited and, you know, permanently, you know, save that heirloom variety for your family and for your community that uh, in a way that really doesn't have any other type of protection. Um, you know, there's no real equivalent protection that's out there with any type of group that's working on this. So it's a really, really great group. Um, and uh, one of the tools that they've created to try and help, you know, generate a little bit of, of funding for that is this AI tool that uh, not only can help a lot of people, but also be a way for us to kind of generate a little bit of revenue so we can pay for, you know, different things that we need to pay for in order to help advance the, the open source, um, you know, genetic registration. Yeah, I, I think that there is so much in that that we probably should unpack it a piece at a time. Sure. Because there's the genetic uh, open source patent prevention preservation in the open market. And then there's the fact that like what you demonstrated at my workshop, and I can't remember the exact things, but it's like I live in Fort Worth, Texas. I want to grow cucumber, corn and tomatoes. What can I use to make fertilizer from that exists in my climate? So there's, you know, wild plants I can go out and gather and make fertilizer out of. And it just spit out exactly what to get and not only what to use, how to use it. Take these things combined, like a recipe to make soup, basically. We have, uh, I'm, I'm playing with her a little bit, but Gma Merkel here on and on about knotweed. And she's saying you're going to spread knotweed. And I'm like, well, I don't know if we would use knotweed or not, but if we did, by the time we made fertilizer out of it, we're not going to be spreading it by using it as a fertilizer. Um, and, and that, to me, it would start with that because people can get their head around it. Imagine this, folks. You're you're putting your garden in this year, and you have specific crops you want to grow, and you just give it base. And this is interesting to me, Stephen. I don't know if you got to listen to Jeff Lawton's talk yesterday in Matt's seminar. But he was talking about this very thing, and I've sent him an email to let him know about you because I'm like, we're doing this already. It's already happening. And he was talking about basically using it for permaculture designs. But, you know, we're already to the point where you're, you've got this thing working where a person that's having a specific problem with a specific crop in a specific location can be told, here's the remedy that's sitting in your backyard. Absolutely, yeah. And, and that's really one of the things that um – uh, I think it really needs to be done is, is to make this type of information accessible by having something that's that easy to use. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people have hit a brick wall with the permaculture community, try and convert a lot of these farmers. I know I run into it as well is uh, basically people that, um, uh, don't have the time, you know, they're, they're running a farm. Uh, they need a simple, easy way to immediately uh, address these issues and okay cool i don't need to learn the whole thing i just need instructions i can follow instructions and i can go and do the thing but i don't have time to go learn a whole new technique and this can kind of um you know kind of bridge that gap for people that are, are wanting to do that and someone uh and uh was mentioning knotweed and um if you ferment uh any of these these herbs and things like that or you're, you're using these type of microbial breakdowns you're, you're not going to spread anything you know you're not going to spread mint or anything else that's going to be invasive potentially yeah, I mean, when you liquefy something, you've pretty much taken away its ability to reproduce. I don't know. This person has been around with us for a long time. I don't know what's up their butt today or whatever, but it is what it is. I accidentally banned her out of a chat room a couple of days ago. Maybe she's mad and honoring. I don't know. But, yeah, you're not going to be propagating something that's been fermented into that gone liquefied state. Um, but I think another thing that you hit on there that I think, and, and I heard you talking about this yesterday as well, and I think this is so important, expanding the knowledge base beyond the English-speaking world. So 
there is a massive amount of information available today. Me, you, tons of other people. There's people who are doing things totally in different ways, and that's great. And, and even many of them that are in other parts of the world, because the, the money in the world is in the English-speaking world. So, like, I know one dude named, I can't think of his last name, but his first name is Dexter. He has a YouTube channel called Dexter's World out of the Philippines. So he's Filipino, but all his content's in English because that's where the eyeballs are. Well, there's the majority of the world does not speak English, not even as a second language. And that's hard for us to believe. We live in our little bubble, but we need to spread this knowledge across the world. And, and one of the things AI can do is instant translation. Different world, but same aspect. We have a book that's about my, my wife's grandfather and the things that he did in the underground fighting the Nazis in World War II. And it's in a weird old school dialect of Dutch. And the cost of translation is ridiculous because it, it it requires more than just a direct translation because it's in this weird dialect. Well, my wife and her sister are using AI right now to translate it. So if you can do something that obscure, take in what Jack Spirico or Stephen Reisner or Matt Powers or any Jeff Lawton puts out and saying, here it is in your native tongue, that's a cakewalk. Oh, yeah. And the other some of the other things that we're working on right now is the ability to push one button, talk to it and then have it talk to you back in a, in a, a you know, a tonal language that that'll, you'll be able to understand. So you don't even have to read. You know, if we can yeah. make that to where people don't even have to be literate, that's going to open it to even a whole other layer of people that are, are basically the most farmers. You 70 percent of the world gets most of its income from farming or from agriculture. And, you know, there's a most of them are not all, but a large percentage of those 70 percent of the population can't read. So by having something that's as simple as a push button to to have a conversation with their phone, everyone has phones or at least, you know, a smartphone, even in the depths of Africa, uh, which, uh, you know, in Zimbabwe and remote Zimbabwe where I was, everybody had a cell phone and they actually use weather balloons for the cell phone towers because it's cheaper. They, they bring them down on Sunday night to do the maintenance and they send them back up in the morning and uh, it's up for the week and, and that's how they maintain them. Because they simply don't have the infrastructure, they don't have the the towers or, or whatever else, and it's the simplest way to do it. Um, by having these types of uh, um, you know simple solutions, you know you're giving this and democratizing this education to a whole new you know portion of the world that badly needs this information. It's something that's really really awesome about this group. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, you mentioned the the uh, one gentleman from there. I'm going to try to get him on. I, I'd appreciate the introduction and get him on in the future, and we'll deep dive uh, just into his work. But another thing I'd like you to talk about with it now is something else you brought up, because there, if I made a list of, like, the top ten entities that are scumbags on the planet, I don't know where they would land, but somewhere in there, like the Conagra Bear Monsanto Consortium of Patenting Life Forms, would make the top uh, the top five list, right? Banksters would be in there, uh, but definitely the people that are patenting life forms. And so the fact that this can be used so that, and, and understand, folks, he's talking about people all around the world. Again, we can get past the language barrier because here's an example. When the U.S. decided we were going to help Iraq and we went in and toppled Saddam Hussein and the world was a better place in the words of George Bush, uh, who else went along to help was Monsanto, and they started patenting seeds that were Iraqi seed varieties that had been around for thousands of years. And if we can take the genetic makeup of these seeds, whether it's something that ancient or Bill's special backyard tomato that he worked on for 10 years to get it to where it is, 
and we can put that out into the open source world, we can make it basically untouchable by that system, right? Absolutely, yeah, and and it's exactly what what CopyLab was was created for is is again to you know allow people to take their genetic material that they've already developed or already have, and then put it into an open source registration so that that can't be exploited. And even if like you were saying too, um, Afghanistan as well with all the poppies, you know, they went in there and took a bunch of those those um, desert tolerant poppies and patented them for pharmaceutical companies. This is exactly you no, know, not not any different. You know, it's it's really really becoming a huge problem and also too you know you have just a tiny handful of companies are, are controlling almost all the world's seed production right now it's like 85 percent of the world's seed production is controlled by four companies that's a huge problem from a genetic diversity standpoint if we have you know a genetic bottleneck in any of these types of places we're screwed because we no longer have the diversity that we used to have that's why things like the you know the different seed swaps and things like that that people organize in their local area are so important you know for, for this exact reason and um, by being able to put this into a software form we now can tie that genetic uh, material to a software license which is automatically you know copyrighted the moment you write software so and once you put that onto a public blockchain ledger now it's there forever for everyone to see and there's no disputing this anymore so it yeah. does offer us a new way to kind of get around some of these things. And I mean, when I was in, in Africa, Syngenta owns like 90, 95% of the market of Africa. They basically own the whole country. Every single farmer there is spending 85 of his income, 85%, excuse me, of his income uh, on seeds and fertilizers and pesticides instead of his on his kids. You know, with an app like this that we're going to uh, demonstrate here in, in a little bit, um, it allows him to spend that 85% of his income on Literally anything that's more important for his family, spending money on the kids' education, spending money on transportation or spending money on, you know, whatever it is that's more important in his life. Um, and same thing, too, for, for farmers here in America. You know, they're being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And they need some alternatives. In fact, the guy that taught me about Korean natural farming was Chris Trump. He was uh, running a 700-acre macadamia nut farm. Uh, I hope you can get him on the show sometime. He's a really, really wonderful educator. Um uh, so uh, he was running a 700-acre macadamia nut farm that his family had built in Hawaii for I forget how many generations. He's part uh, Native Hawaiian, and uh, he um, uh, ran into basically they couldn't afford to do all the traditional you know preparations that last year. They basically were going to go under. They were going to mm. go bankrupt. So uh, there, as a last resort, they tried to do the natural farming methodology, and they ended up with 125% of the yield of all their neighbors after the. The, the first year uh, spreading it to all 700 acres. So they did a tiny 10 acre plot the first year and then 700 acres the second year and it completely transformed the entire macadamia nut farm production for the entire island, the Hawaiian island there. Um, you know, everyone is now doing that and, and getting much, much better results. And one of the other cool things he realized was when he was spraying all of his li liquid IMO under the trees is the weevils and the beetles that were attacking the trees suddenly looked like popcorn. And they were covered in a fungal growth of mycorrhizae that had killed them and eaten them and was using them as a food source. And he realized that, you know, some of these can be used as pesticides as well in an organic way that's also still helping heal the soil. And it's nothing that wasn't already there. He collected that fungi on the property and, and then just put it back on in a more concentrated way in a more direct application. And it managed to eliminate even some of these, you know, untreatable, quote unquote, um, weevils and beetles that were otherwise, you know, wrecking crops on other parts of the island. So um, hmm. this is the type of research and, and the type of thing that, you know, people came to this type of stuff because they were kind of, you know, didn't have the, the ability to continue traditional, you know, Western uh, chemical fertilizer, pesticide type methodologies and ended up finding something that's so much better. I know 
I can't imagine, you know, not going ever going back to, to not utilizing those types of methods for myself with large scale cannabis production, because there's simply no other way to keep the bugs and the, and the molds off in a way that still allows us to smoke the product. Um, yeah. you know, a great example, you know, with, with traditional stuff, mycobutanol is often used for or- orchards. Uh, anyone that's run any kind of large scale orchard that's watching the show today knows what I'm talking about. Eagle 20 and things like that. Well, if you burn it, it turns to hydrogen cyanide. I can't use that, right? So even if it's okay to eat, you, you can't burn it. So we, we're very, very restricted in the industry that I, I operate in the most. And um, these are the type of solutions that allow us to kind of bridge that gap and, and still allow everything to be healthy. And I mean, correct, you can spray all the inputs from natural farming in your mouth and, or drink them. And, you know, you can't do that with uh, no. traditional fertilizers or pesticides, that's for sure. No, see, I think one of the reasons you're so damn good at this from a, a standpoint of let's kill bugs but not hurt people is you're in two spaces at the same time that require a different mindset than anything you can do in the field, even though you do some in-ground field cultivation consulting at work as well. But you're in aquaponics and you're in cannabis. There, There is no product that is tested more on the market today than cannabis. It's to every single batch is tested in multiple ways for multiple things. And like you said, there's certain things you can put on an apple. You probably shouldn't, but nobody sets an apple on fire before they eat it. I I don't think anyway. So they're not going to create cyanide out of this stuff and kill themselves. But then you've got aquaponics. And while I don't have a ton of experience with the growing of cannabis anyway, uh, I have a lot of aquaponics experience and a lot of things that people say, well, just spray the, well, I'll kill my fish, right? So I can't use these poisons because I'm in a true living system and I can't kill the fish because then everything in the system dies. And I think that's probably benefited you a tremendous amount. It's made you look at these alternatives and, and, and build this knowledge base up because you don't really have an alternative, especially if you take those two worlds and you use aquaponics to grow cannabis. Once you do that, all that has to go out the window. Oh yeah, and you know every ten pounds, and uh, you know in most markets is is tested for, you know herbicides, pesticides, um, mycotoxins, residues uh, from any of those things. So you can even treat the problem and have it go away, but the residual mycotoxins from that mold outbreak from you know two months ago can still fail you. So. Uh, again, we, we are we make organic look easy be, uh, in comparison to the level of testing that we're in rigor that we have to go through. And then with aquaponics, you know, they, they test all of our water for E. coli and salmonella. And that's one of the reasons why I have so much knowledge and was the first person to document how lactobacillus, uh, basically the way from, you know, if you make cheese at home, the way. Um, you take that off and pour that in your aquaponic system at a one to one thousand ratio. So one gallon per every thousand gallons of system volume will eliminate E. coli and salmonella and listeria from a, a live system without having to bring the system offline and sterilize it, without having to pull all the fish out and, and treat them with a, a chemical antibiotic. You can just treat the whole system in line uh, and, and within, a, you know, 30 days, the entire system and all the vegetables are completely, you know, approved and ready for sale again. So you can't do that with any other type of methodology, um, you know, and, and still have a system, any other type of aquaponic treatment, you'd have to basically break the cycle of the system. You'd be killing off your nitrifying bacteria. You know, you'd crash the system and have to basically restart in that type of scenario before that we did that type of research. So, um, you know, a lot these natural farming methodologies have really solved a lot of these, these pathogen and pest problems and, and improve the overall food um, uh, health and food safety, as well as the nutrient density of these crops 
Um, for another one uh, with natural farming is adding liquid IMO to your uh, mineralization tanks or even your MBBRs or whatever you're using for mineralization. Uh, again, dramatically can increase your, your available nutrients in the water by as much as 85%, depending on which nutrient we're talking about. And that's do, something doing as simple as collecting, you know, a local collections off of the forested parts of your property and introducing those microbes you know, to kind of fill in the missing gaps in your, your mineralization food web inside your system. You know, of all that stuff you just mentioned, one I've used already is the lab or the lactic acid bacteria in my aquatic systems. And less for the reason you just described, but more for the byproduct of the fact that, like, you get channel catfish and they have these weird, like, breakouts on their face. Bluegills, there's, I mean, people think of bluegills as these little cute sunfish that kids catch, and they are. They're also savage. They're just brutal on each other, and they end up creating all these little wounds, and then they get funguses and stuff like that. And since I've started tossing lab into my systems, and I do it about every 60 days, it's gone. I don't have any of those weird things going on on my fish anymore. And then oh, the, the resiliency then of the rest of the system, and then you've got the curd, and you can either use that. like you, I've seen you talk even about feeding it to fish, or you can literally make cheese out of it. And that's, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about something that – a lot of y'all in our audience are already doing this. You just didn't realize instead of pouring the way out or feeding it to your dog or drinking it yourself, you could actually be using it in an aquaponic system to enhance its health. And that's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that when you talk like this, people think you're, you're doing something really complicated, and it can be, but parts of it are so simple that it's under your nose and you don't see it. Oh, yeah. And, you know, for labs, you're just basically taking either kefir or some other lactobacillus inoculants or even air collecting it on rice wash, adding it to some milk and some water and letting it sit, uh, you know, in a corner for two to three days, taking the curd off the top. Just like you're saying, convert that into cheese by, by doing the, you know, cooking it and pressing it or just feeding it right to your fish. You know, you were talking about bluegill. I love to feed the bluegill the curd off of the, the labs because mm -hmm. just like you're saying, bluegill and perch are another one that beat the crap out of each other are constantly fin nipping. And um, if you have uh, that, that in there, that's going to help get rid of those secondary infections. You're not going to have those secondary fungal infections or those secondary bacterial infections because the lactobacillus is so aggressive. It loves to feed on those types of pathogenic microbes as a food source. It, it, it loves to eliminate those types. That's why it works so well for E. coli. So these are the types of things where you can have a natural ally that can come in and just smash that um, that that issue really, really easily for you without you having to do a whole lot other than what you'd normally be doing on your farm anyway. And it's one of the, the wonderful things about natural farming and why I can't recommend people learn it enough, um, especially, you know, another great example. We had the big floods in Oklahoma a couple of years ago, back in 2019, and um, a lot of people weren't able to plant their cantaloupe or their melons and things like that. Well, we had a neighbor. We went out, sprayed his field with uh, lactobacillus, and he had no problems with his cantaloupe, even though that field was flooded with flood water, you know, literally 15 days before planting. So, um, you know, you can't do that with any traditional farming method and still guarantee that crop's going to be safe to eat. And, uh, and they didn't have any problems and you know, they passed all of their testing and were able to still sell and not have to rely on that crop insurance that's going to would have given him you know way less money per acre uh, and he was still able to pull off that uh that harvest for that year so they can also help farmers in ways that they don't even realize especially with the harsh weather that we've had this particular winter um you know if we have a pretty rough spring this could be another solution for people watching the show um to help them kind of maximize or even still salvage their their grow season that's that's a, that's just awesome 
I didn't even really think of using it on a kind of a broader scale, but it makes perfect sense given what it does. Uh, I do like the whole questions to the end, but this is a quick one and it fits exactly what we're talking about. So we're talking about basically making whey by curdling milk. And Andy's asking, is water kefir basically lab? Like if you're making kefir, are you, can you just use that? So I, I'll be honest with you. I haven't tried using the water kefir all that much, okay. um, but I do. Um, I, I don't know a whole, as much about it. I mostly relied on the the milk based kefirs. Um, uh, I, 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 now, on lactobacillus itself, now, traditionally the traditional um, Japanese uh, Korean methodology is to use rice wash. So take your rice, rinse it real well, take the dust from the rice, and then put that out with a cheesecloth on top for one to three days to collect the initial yeasts and the um, the lactobacillus. And that's a great methodology. But what I like to do is I like to also add either the lactobacillus probiotics, which you can get at your pharmacy. It has like, you know, 12 or 20 different lactobacilluses for your gut after you take antibiotics. Crack a couple of those pills open and dump it in there. Now we have diversified the lactobacillus. The other thing you can do is take your milk kefir or even yogurt from the grocery store, as long as it's not a weird strawberry flavored one or whatever, just plain Jane. Add a couple scoops of that in there too. Now, now we have a ton of diversity with lactobacillus. All of them are going to feed off of that milk. Now, why would you want to do that? So the reason why you would want to have more diversity is, is twofold. First off, you have a much higher chance of one of those species being hyper um, uh, uh predatory towards any pathogens that you might be trying to get rid of or, you know, spraying it on for to treat powdery mildew or things like that. One of those is going to happen to, to really like that uh, environment. The other reason why is because lactobacillus as their byproduct also puts out vitamin B. So by having more diverse types of lactobacillus, you're going to get more different versions of vitamin B. And when you give vitamin B to plants, it works like um, uh, there's a product you can buy on the market called Super Thrive. It's basically liquid vitamin B for your plants. You can make I'm this aware stuff of that, yourself. Yeah. Yeah, you can make a growth accelerator yourself that will heal your plants and, and make them grow super, super fast. And you can drink it. You know what I mean? So that's why another reason to, to increase the diversity of your lactobacillus. Very cool, man. Do you want to go ahead before we keep going on and talking about AI a bit, go ahead and pull up that tool sure, and maybe show people how it works. And guys, if you're listening to the audio and uh, you want a better understanding of this, you can come check out the video. And I'm looking at the timestamp on the video. And by the time I had music in it, might be a little bit further forward. But you want to get to around 38 minutes uh, into the video in that er, er, general area if you want to see this later on, if you're listening to the audio. And I'm just kind of burning some time while Steven pulls that up uh, uh, so he can show it to you. But I, I, I want, I'll, I'll speak on it a bit as he gets it ready to go. When I saw this at my workshop, I was blown away. But it was also exactly what I've been talking about for the last year with AI being developed. I just didn't think of it in this niche. So being a guy that likes to play with snakes and, and things like that, the example I've used in AI episodes is you could get a whole group of herpetologists together and they could build the most advanced artificial intelligence tool for sharing information among the world's herpetologists. Well, not, why not do it with natural farming? Why not do it with permaculture? Why not do it with seed pads? Why not do it with all these things? And, and this, is, this is where I've been talking about AI over the years, and some of you guys are really resistant to it, Yes, I agree. If the state has AI and uses it against us, that's bad. But, you know, why do you own guns if the state has guns and it's bad when the state uses guns? Because if you're 
If your enemy has a pew delivery device, you want one too, and you want a better one. And I think AI is a place where we actually can do better because it's one thing to uh, to go out and try to go into an arms race with the state when you're talking about violence and mechanical devices. But when it comes to code, when it comes to code and a person in a garage is on equal footing with the NSA, that's a war we can win and for the betterment of mankind because usually war is a negative thing. But I think if this is going to be a war, we've got the advantage and what we're putting out is incredible. I don't know what's more peaceful than teaching people how to grow food. And at the same time, I don't know what's more seditious than teaching people how to grow food. And I love that. Go ahead, Steve. Show them how it works. Sure. So um, and if you want to grab anybody from chat, too, if they have a a garden size um, and feet or uh, crop choices, we can also do that. So um, let's let's pick a place. So we'll say uh, I am in Houston, Texas. And I have a four foot by eight foot grow bed with lettuce and other leafy greens. I have a four by four foot grow bed with uh, tomatoes and peppers and a three by seven foot grow bed with cucumbers and squash. I want to make a fertilizer solution using invasive plants that accounts for all of the plant's nutrient needs throughout the season. So if guys remember when I said if there was a virtual Jack you could ask questions to, what would you pay for it? Well, what if you could have a virtual Reisner, you could ask questions to that. I think I might pay for that myself. So this um, utilizes a couple of different databases. So I started a, pro- a, pro- a project a while ago called Open Nutrient Project to basically aggregate all the different nutrient data from as many different sources as possible so that we had the information on what the nutrient content was of different plants so that you could better create natural farming uh, inputs. So we basically took this huge nutrient database that I built that is over 44,000 plants uh, and then um, combined it with the uh, efforts of Copy Left and a bunch of other resources that they had um, to create uh, a really wonderful um, resource for uh, creating different things. And it knows what plants are in what parts of the world. It will do its best to try and source um, based on that. And then it'll give you step-by-step instructions um, using Jadam or natural farming. Jadam is a a version of a Korean natural farming um, that um, is there and then uh Vikar Shaveda is a kind of an Indian version of it um so it, you know it kind of gives you that version um it has a bunch of different methodologies that it knows and there's many different tribes of organic uh and actually makes some pretty cool stuff like like nutrient infused IMO solutions um which is something the AI came up with all on its own uh and a bunch of other cool things that very much complement what humans whoa, 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 wait 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 rewind back there AI yeah. came up with it on its own Yep. 
based off of all the information that we fed it. So it's even coming up with new natural farming inputs that, you know, never existed before people were using this. So, uh, and we're, we're constantly adding new methodologies. We have a whole, we have two people that are just working on sourcing like stuff that's already working in other cultures and then inputting it into this. And what's also cool is we can even input, you know, if we have a text that's from India and it's all in Hindi, we can directly input it into this and it will, it will digest it and spit it back out into any language. So, here it is. You can see here. Here's a list of the plants that um, we can collect locally in, in Houston. So pick sunflower, hydrilla, alfalfa, uh, water lettuce, and uh, austerior. Um, and then it came up with uh, different recipes. Uh, so the first one was jadam, and it also came up with a Indian input, and then the Korean natural farming input um, with exact instructions, uh, SOP for how to you know pull that off, uh, and then um, you know a little bit about each one. Uh, it can also do pest control too. So I can say I have powdery mildew on my tomatoes. What should I do? And then it'll think, and then it'll it'll pick a natural farming methodology. Usually, Jadam or natural farming, but sometimes some of the other methodologies. Um, again, it's it's a work in progress, but we have put a lot of time into it. It's been about a year in the making, and um, it already does an incredible amount of different things. Uh, especially if you're trying to say, oh well, I have I need a little bit more iron, or I need a little bit more magnesium, or manganese, or whatever. Um, it'll go through and and find those different plants in, on your property and and help you. And we'll do that demonstration next. See what I love about this is it doesn't require, like you said, somebody to become some kind of sage, you know, studying for years and years and years before they know what to do. Because there's a lot of people that frankly they don't either have time for it or that's not what they're looking for in their life. They just want to know, I, I want to grow tomatoes and peppers and not have them die. And, and this is where I live and what do I need? And you make this something that I, I kind of like look at it like the Matrix in a way. It, it, the, the, you know, you, you, Neo wanted to learn Kung Fu. They just dumped it into his head and he had what he needed. Now, we're not that far yet anyway. But the fact that a person can basically ask a master for any issue they're trying to solve and get an answer instead of my child when you are ready the answer will appear right that that's incredibly powerful and then the linguistics component of this that allows us to learn from somebody that speaks hindi or allow somebody that speaks hindi who's a poor farmer trying to make a go of things to learn from us that is exceptional steve yeah sorry i had an internet uh Cut oh. out there for a second, so I apologize. Uh, I got to ask the question again, but uh, it'll it'll load here in a second. And what are you asking it right now? Uh, just about powdery mildew. Oh, okay, all right. We'll we'll, we'll wait on that. And Ooh, oh, you dropped it. That's all right. You're ready. When you're ready. Let, let's keep chatting so we don't uh, bore the audio people, and you can you can work on that. It, I mean, we're kind of hitting on this, but how do you see AI changing the world here? So this is the kind of stuff where I can see it again, like we talked about before, democratizing this type of knowledge and, and kind of re-empowering the farmer in a way that they haven't really had since, you know, before World War II. Um, you know, they've been so relied on, reliant on a lot of these different, um, uh, you know, chemical inputs that we've, like we've talked about uh, uh, earlier in the episode that, you know, they, they only know one way to do it, which is go buy the solution. And the solution is on their property. 
No, that's a that's a seed change of the brain, and and and, 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 st- and to start asking how can I fix the problem I have with what I have available to me, other than go purchase a solution, and this is something that is an iron grip on farmers and growers because the industry profits by you buying stuff. So the last thing they want to tell you is you know don't buy stuff because then they don't make any money. And I, I'm a capitalist. I don't. I don't have a problem with people making money. What I do have a problem with is, is regulatory capture and institutional capture that creates a system that's basically a form of artificial scarcity. We have your solutions and only we have your solutions. And don't look over there. Pay attention to the men behind the curtain and give us your money. Because like you said, you got a farmer in India or Africa spending 80% of their revenue to make the next crop and only ending up with 20% as profit. And I think one of the things we have to start teaching farmers all over the world, right here in the United States, and I'm even 40,000 acre conventional farmers. Look, dude, if you produce less food but make more money, you're better off. Because sometimes in a transition, there may be initially at least a reduction in yield. But if I'm spending $100,000 to make fifty. And I make fifty thousand dollar profit. If I spend zero dollars to make seventy five thousand dollars, have I not taken a giant leap forward? And that's a mindset. Like we don't even. I think we've gotten farmers to the point. Yeah, they'll bitch about their input costs and all, but they really don't think about it. It's just more like, well, I heard a dude when we had the uh, the whole thing started in Ukraine, and we put the sanctions on Russia, and there was less urea coming into the country. And he's like, I can tell you right now how you get corn. You tell me how many acres, and I'll tell you how many pounds of nitrogen, and then that'll tell you how many bushels of corn. And I heard this man talking, and I'm like, he's not dumb. And in his world, he's not wrong. But he is a captive tool of this system without realizing it. Absolutely. And you can see here um, for the powdery mildew, you know, it talks about identification and, you know, mentioning that you need to take immediate action, um, you know, remove the effective leaves to, to get started. Uh, once you do that, make sure your environment is, is set to kind of reduce the likelihood that an outbreak is, uh, happens. And then, you know, here's your, your natural fungicide application using milk and water. Uh, and then they have lactobacillus as another option, uh, strengthening the plant's immunity, like we talked about with the IMO, uh, and then regular monitoring and maintenance. So it kind of gives you a whole plan on what to do. It's not just like, oh, here's the one option. You know, it's like, okay, here's a couple of different methods. Um, pick the one that's going to work best for you or combine, you know, do a couple of them. And here's kind of an action plan. Um, you know, we can do, uh, aphids. Aphids on my peppers. What do I do? And uh, yeah, so we'll uh, it'll think about this, and then it also knows beneficial insects. Um, so it'll give you beneficial insect recommendations um, and a whole bunch of other different uh, methodologies for for treating pests and pathogens. Um, we're currently building that out. Uh, in the future version, we will have it to where it can scan, so you'll be able to take photos. <laughs> either upload them directly to it or take a picture of it utilizing the um, utilizing the program itself and then you know it will go ahead and identify it and give you a, a treatment plan as well so that's that's coming in a future version we, we, we're working on the training right now uh, it's currently using um, a GPT-4 as part uh, as its main logic base but the um, we're actually training our own version now it's uh, going to be much much better for 
utilizing large data sources since we're, we're utilizing so many different plant nutrient databases and other resource databases from universities and things like that and aggregating them all into one uh, hive mind uh, for kind of agriculture collectively that um, it, it made more sense for us to kind of abandon GPT uh, long term um, to, towards uh, some, some methodologies that will work a little bit better for the how many different places we're trying to, to pull from at once. Yeah, I think it's just definitely an emerging technology and it'll be uh, some things that will change along the way. But what's been done already is frankly amazing and it gives you a glimpse of what's possible. Can you talk a little bit about maybe ranchers that are raising livestock instead of just hmm. growing vegetables and, and fruits? Because I, I, I say this all the time, the most resilient systems in the world, whether they're vegetative or just meat output, have animals in them and it's the most nutrient dense food in the world as well. And I think there would be an inclination like this is all just for growing lettuce and, uh, you know, spinach and cannabis or whatever, but this, this stuff can help ranchers too, right? Oh yeah. So for those on the audio, he's typing some stuff into the machine right now. And one thing I'll kind of point out as he's doing that is that, when you look at something like a cow, what does it eat? Right. So, so the health of the underlying ecosystem, if we're not fattening our cow and a CAFO is as important as anything else. Like the product we see at the end is this big, beautiful ribeye or something like that, or uh, milk from a dairy animal. But without this fundamentally sound soil based ecosystem to produce the best food for them, which is not grain corn. Cows are ruminants. You don't ruminate corn. You eat the plant they could eat just fine. Um, so, Steve, can you can you call it, let people know what you've been uh, doing there right now? Sure. So uh, we just asked it for 20,000 acres. As told that so we have 20,000 acres of uh, grazing land for my cattle. Um, give me a nutrient plan to maintain uh, my pastures. Um, so it's giving uh, a nutrient plan utilizing alfalfa pellets, corn gluten, compost, bird guano, and cow manure um, because it, it tries to always stick with organic inputs. Um, we didn't give it a location or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I probably should have, but uh, now it's giving an exact recipe. So for those listening in audio, it says recipe one, well, I'll let it finish before it goes, but it's giving us three different recipes of nutrient solutions um, so that, you know, we can kind of choose which one or even mix and match. Uh, and then it's giving us the fertilizer SOPs. Uh, it's giving us a, a release schedule, uh, spring, summer, fall uh, crop rotation um, with uh, preventing overgrazing. Um, so, okay, here we go. So it says uh, ingredients, compost and cow manure. Uh, put 250 grams per square foot of compost, 60 grams per square foot of cow manure. Um, step uh, for your application rates for your your manure spreaders. Step mix compost and cow manure thoroughly. Apply evenly across the patches, focusing on areas that show signs of nutrient deficiency. Um, your second recipe is your high nutrient uh, nitrogen blend. So this is going to be your corn gluten and bird guano. You wanted 15 grams per square foot with the corn gluten and 25 grams per square foot with the bird guano. Uh, combine them and distribute blend over the pastures, particularly in areas where uh, plant growth is lacking. And then the balanced NPK mixture is the alfalfa, the compost, and the bird guano. Uh, recommending it 40 grams per square foot um, for the alfalfa pellets, 125 grams per square foot of the compost, and 25 grams per square foot of the bird guano. Uh, and then once it does that, it, uh, it tells you about 
instructions for using the fertilizer recipes, test your soils to determine nutrient deficiencies, choose the appropriate recipe uh, above based on your soil results, um, fertilizer application schedules, uh, spring, summer, fall. Uh, and again, too, it can get even more, um, uh, more specific. So we can say, uh, I have 10 acres of horse pasture. I need more iron. I need more iron and magnesium in the soil as both are lacking about 20 ppms from the ideal range. I live in um, southern Florida. What? Uh, and I want to use local plants. Use local plants to do so. Give me a solution. Okay, so now it's thinking, um, and uh, we will uh, read the answer here in a moment. But this is the type of hyper-specific thing that it's it's really, really designed for. Um, I, again, I have put in thousands and thousands and thousands of different plant nutrients levels, uh, so it knows all these different research papers and the different nutrient content of thousands of different plants, so it knows that this plant has this much you know, nitrogen and phosphorus or potassium or iron or, or whatever. So it's suggesting Spanish nettles, horsetail, dandelion, uh, stinging nettle, and comfrey as the blend. So it's going to make a fermented plant juice, um, two parts Spanish nettle to one part horsetail, uh, and it gives instructions for that. Uh, and then it gives you an application rate of 1 to 500 um, in a liquid form once, it, once it's created. Uh, recipe two is the comfrey and nettle tea, uh, using equal parts comfrey and nettle. Uh, and has instructions for that and along with application rates. Uh, and then now the dynamic accumulator mulch, it's looking at dandelion, nettles, comfrey. Um, and again, all of those will, would help uh, amend that um, uh, for your property. So it really is a, a, a wonderful way, you know, especially if you're doing soil testing and you want to kind of have that traditional type of methodology where you can dial those in. Um, this is going to be you know, a, a great resource for, for those types of applications. Um, I want to hit on something here that I'm seeing. You know, we first we had the person shrieking about the knot re- knotweed, um, which was unusual for that person, I'll just say. Uh, but it's a very similar vein to this from Hanging Laundry. It's very easy for power politics to be injected in the human health arena. I agree. Just as chat, P- chat, B- chat GPT is very biased. Well, if you go to the OpenAI chat GPT that you pay a subscription price for and use it, sure, it'll be biased in certain areas, especially social justice stuff or whatever. That's not what this is. And I really encourage people to start realizing sometimes when you're listening to someone talk, they're talking, the reason you're listening to them, they're talking about things you don't know. Okay. And in this case, what's missing from that context of comment, and I might have him out of context, so it's more general broad. The stuff you're looking at has been built and trained by Stephen and some other folks. This is not going to chat GPT, you know, at, at OpenAI and just using it off the shelf. This is a cut. And this is what I've been trying to explain. That's what I'm so excited about. I've been trying to explain this for over a year now. It's, it's basically a little less than a year. It seems like a year. 
we are not talking about letting someone else control this. We're talking about individuals and individual groups collaborating to create these tools using their own processing power to be able to go into something tightly niched and do what that system couldn't even if it wasn't biased. And that's just, it's hard to get your head around it because it's not the way we think. Everything that we tend to use on the internet is, you know, the Brave browser, Google, whatever. Like we're using other people's tools instead of building our own. You know, that's guys, that's why I have sponsors like Above Phone and Start Nine, because we need to start taking control of our own applications, knowledge, programming, et cetera. And for those of us that are like, I'm never going to write a line of code or whatever, that's why we have people like this that are building these tools. And the front end of it, it feels like using chat GPT off the shelf, but the results are customized for the individual niche. Yeah. So it, it uh, in the current form, it is a, um, we have all of our own training data. We've used all of our own reference tables, all of that stuff. So it's not just basically asking GPT. You can ask GPT these questions and it will not give you the same answers remotely no. close to what, what ours no. says. Um, we are using chat GPT for the thinking logic portion of it. Um, sure. That will be replaced uh, in a future version. We're currently working on that right now. We have a version that's not quite uh, matching what we have right now with the current world, but it will eventually replace the one that we currently have. And that mostly came to do with the fact that now we have so, we basically, it would cost us too much per month if we stuck with chat GPT in order to utilize all of the data. So by migrating it over to a different method, we can actually have much, much larger data sets. We can start to scrape entire universities worth of um, nutrient data for all of the work that they've done for, for different plant stuff. It's already in the public domain and then compile them and, and things like that. So that's where all this training data and, and training the AI, you know, takes a lot of time and, um, you know, also testing it too, you know, making sure that we have reference material that we can ask it to make sure it's giving the right answers. I know yeah. there's a question in chat about, you know, what is the percentage of accuracy in terms of nutrient output? It will give you a nutrient output that is within a very small margin of error because um, it already knows what the general nutrient content or average nutrient content is of thousands and thousands and thousands of different plants. So that when you, and it also knows roughly approximately how much they break down into and how much it increases the bioavailability. If you ferment them or compost them or whatever else, you will have some conversion, obviously Fe2 to Fe3 in the case of iron, you know, P2O4 in the case of phosphorus and things like that. But it knows, you know, what percentages those are going to break down through oxidation and things like that. So. By having that built into and baked into the whole system, by having it reference the local nutrients and soil types where, you know, in given locations, as well as the different plants that are available in different areas, it can start to combine all of that resources the same way a good gardener would, knowing what are, you know, is useful and resourceful in their local area to create a really good healthy compost. Well, the AI is just doing the same thing. It's just a lot smarter and it knows a lot more plants than you do. And it knows a lot more details about the plants than, than you're, even the most skilled professional gardener does because it can pick and choose exactly what, what's good. And you can even say, Hey, I don't have that plant in my area. Um, you know, can you give me an alternative well, and it'll yeah. replace that. So yeah, and I'm not saying hallucinating anything, but it's certainly, um, we haven't had anyone have any negative uh, results and we have people utilizing this now at, at pretty large scales, um, and, and utilizing it daily, uh, especially in Africa. And uh, we have another guy in Afghanistan, uh, and a couple of other people that are, are really in, uh, a guy in, um, uh, India and, and all over that are utilizing this on a daily basis for their farm and having incredible results. 
Yeah, and, and it's definitely necessary because I was putting some stuff together for another course I'm building now on cover crops. And it's all information I knew, and I was just trying to get AI to formulate a chart for me based on root type and stuff. And it was getting root structures of common plants wrong. So, and that's going to happen. And I think people need to understand when you look at something like ChatGPT, it's mostly a learning tool right now. And I mean, learning how to use the technology. It will not always be right. And that's why in any deep niche, this type of work has to be done for it to realize its potential. Because when, when you're asking it, you know, what is the root structure of something like cereal, right? It tells you it's taproot. You're like, well, no, it's not. So I can't use you for this. But when we take a tool and that's because it also has to know who wrote the third sonnet of, you know, this play or, or whatever. Or, you know, what is the translation from this ancient French word to the modern French word? And what's its etymology? Like, there's no reason for somebody that's building this tightliness thing to go that broad. So the training, you think about a specialist. So now you're talking about a specialist within the generalist broad version of AI. And I think it's something that people still are having trouble grokking because it's not the way we're used to thinking. Um, and you can expand on that if you want, but I also want you to kind of talk about, I know you're aquaponics guy. Does this help you with that as well? Oh yeah, I actually have a whole a uh, aquaponics version I'm currently working on that um well, I'm not quite ready to show off yet, but yes, we we do have a, an aquaponics separate version uh, in the works that's separate from the natural farming one that uh, I'll be actually be showing off in April. There's a virtual um aquaponics association conference that the aquaponics association of of uh, North America actually does uh their first one this year is going to be in April. So, um that'll all be online. That'll be actually where we'll be we'll debut we'll, where we will be debu debuting that um in, in April. Where where is that at? like geographically sure so the they usually have it in a different city uh the fall one which is the in-person one and then this yeah. year for the first time they're doing a virtual one. Oh, um, okay. I, yeah and if people are really into aquaponics i actually did three years in a row of a virtual aquaponic cannabis conference all of it's for free on my youtube you okay. can check out every single talk uh, on there so if people really want to get into the nitty-gritty and the chemistry um there is uh over 20 talks each year uh, on there and you guys can check it out uh, if you want to get into a rabbit hole topics with aquaponics specifically. Yeah, definitely. Y'all need to subscribe to, uh, Steven's, uh, Steven's YouTube channel, potent ponics. Um, this is like PhD level stuff made to where you'll understand at least most of it. Um, I know there's people when I start talking they're like, Jack's talking nerd again or geek again. And you may feel like that a time or two listening to Stephen, but he goes out of his way to make things understandable and is one of the best and most informative channels on the Internet. I, I really recommend you all subscribe to that. Remember, all the stuff you need to connect here will be available in the audio version of this on my website about 30 minutes after Stephen and I are done today with the live. We can't be there yet because we're not done yet. Um, what about flavor improvement as well, like uh, natural farming in general, but also utilizing this AI tool because you grow food. But part of the problem we have with our existing food supply, even stuff that looks good, has no flavor, taste or nutrient density to it. Absolutely. So so let's talk about why plants actually make flavors. Uh, and why you, you don't have flavors of the stuff at the grocery store, for instance. Now, the stuff that most of the stuff at the grocery store is grown hydroponically in sterile environments because they're so paranoid about food safety and other things like that at a large commercial scale because they're running in a sterile environment. And if anything gets in there, it just takes off like gangbusters because there's nothing there to fight it. Um, 
Now, with a good living soil garden bed or aquaponics system, you have a large amount of microbial biodiversity. Uh, in fact, aquaponics, uh, in the this only study that's ever been done that directly compared living soil to aquaponics, often has, on average, 168% more total biodiversity than even the healthiest organic soil bed in terms of total number of species. Now, why is that important? It's important because those microbes stimulate the genes in the plants via the root system. So uh, what that does is it triggers the secondary metabolite production. Uh, and what that means in, in simple form is it increases the essential oil compounds or other flavonoids or terpenes or other things that give you flavor or scent. Uh, um, and, and, and those in turn help fight off fungi, bacteria, insects, environmental factors. Um, plants, for instance, red lettuce produces anthocyanin, uh, one as a way to lock up extra nitrogen, but also as a way to protect itself from too much light. Uh, that red pigmentation can help shield it from, from direct sunlight if it's in a you know, bright uh, area. So the plants produce these compounds for a slew of different reasons, sometimes even multiple reasons. Uh, anthocyanin, like we just talked about, is also a good antifreeze. So if it's getting cold, it'll produce that as well. So a lot of these compounds do two, three, four things for the plant. Now, by increasing the biodiversity of the root system, you can increase the flavor of your crops. That's why stuff grown in your backyard garden and your compost tastes better than, the, than that tomato at the grocery store. The reason why is because you have way better microbial biodiversity. So the plant, the genes that are responsible for the plant's immune system and these secondary metabolites are being activated and they're not being activated in the grocery store plants. And that's why those taste different. And that's why you're the, the, the increasing the biodiversity of your garden, it, be it IMO or lactobacillus or whatever, or com, you know, good healthy compost, whatever it is that you find works best for your particular garden, that's why that's improving the flavor. And that's why increasing that biodiversity even more by adding things like liquid IMO or even solid IMO um, from Korean natural farming or regular natural farming is going to have such a large impact on, you know, within a night and day difference, you, you can do a side by side and, and two weeks later, you'll taste a difference. Yeah, definitely. And I've, I've always found it interesting when the people that are all soil, 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 soil get weird about aquaponics. There's more microbiological diversity in an ebb and flow bed than you can get your head around. And I remember, I don't think you were out there when I did it when you were here, but I was doing some work out by uh, my big garden pond and everything. And I have a couple of flow beds running out of there. And I reached down in it and pulled some of the uh, leak out of the way. And, it, you know, it's been running for a full season and it hadn't been cleaned out or anything for a while. And I pulled out a, just a clump of buildup in it and I put it down on top of the rail. And I said, now tell me what that looks like to you. Well, it looks like soil because it's literally building soil inside the system. And there is, I've heard people say things like, you know, if, if you eat aquaponics food, you can tell it's aquaponics. No, you can't other than it tastes really good. Now, maybe if you have somebody that did it some shitty way, I guess, but there seems to be this mental breakdown and, you know, what we're talking about here is water working. I mean, uh, aqua means water and ponics means to put to work. And so basically it's a system where water is working. Well, what happens to your garden if it completely dries out and there's no water? in it? Well, everything dies. You can only be so dry. People say things are drought, uh, drought resistant or where nothing's drought resistant. It's just di different plants have different depths that they can go to to find water. 
you take water, and that's one thing you learn in aquaponics. If you ever have a pump fail and, and things dry out, you get zero time. It's just dead, right? So we need water, and water is life. And moving water with living things in it, it, it brings life to, to a totally different level. It was one of those things when I got into it, I was more interested in the fish than the, the growth. You know, it was like, uh, well, fish. and you don't really produce that much fish out of an aquaponic system comparatively to the volume of growth you can get out of it. Uh, but once I started doing it and I saw the difference in the way plants performed, it was uh, it was very eye opening. And now it makes sense to me as I've learned more about soil science, like because the system gets fine tuned and then it never goes away. It's so much more resilient because it's automated. It has to be. It doesn't dry out because it can't, right? And and you end up with just, to me, a much more stable ecosystem uh, than a lot of people are going to have in their backyard. And that's why I kind of prefer to refer to aquaponics as aquatic soil because biologically it's aquatic soil. It has mineralization microbes. It has way more, as, way more or as much biodiversity as any good living soil bed. And um, and one of the things, too, with aquaponics is people don't realize, and it's why it's so popular in deserts and, and uh, island nations, is utilize about 18 percent of the water per crop as you do of soil. You know, oftentimes they're quoted at 10 percent. I've never hit 10 percent. And I've, I we do a lot of metrics with the cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, we monitor everything to the thousand, you know, six times over. But I can tell you that we, we average, at least through my data, about 18% of the water compared to a soil control. And, and by doing that, you know, you can utilize, um, you know, significantly less water or grow way more crops, even in a harsh desert environment or island nation than you could ever using just soil because you're losing it to the ground. You're losing it to, you know, a, a, a many different factors that when you have a closed loop or circulating system, you're not having any of that loss except for evaporation and what the plants use, which is, you know, half a percent to a percent per day compared to you know how many gallons you need you know let's just for instance a horse pasture you need to put um you know one inch per per um per acre per per week you know in order to have a horse pasture which is like twenty eight thousand gallons or something like twenty nine thousand gallons you know that's a lot of water for a horse or a cow versus an aquaponic system where you're going to get meat and you're going to get vegetables and you can grow it year round and you can keep breeding those things without ever having to buy additional inputs you know you don't have that kind of thing with with livestock and you utilize way less water in fact i just did a comparison for converting a, a horse farm in New Jersey to a cannabis farm, we were going to utilize about a fifth of the water of the horse farm because they were like, oh, are you, how much water are you going to use if you convert that? Actually, we're going to use about a f- uh, 20% of what the horse farm would if it was fully utilized. So, you know, yeah. people don't realize, like, and that's that's just properly managing it using properly composted soils, uh, drip irrigation, and putting those drip lines underneath the ground and not letting it evaporate. You know, even if you're doing large scale, intensive, high value crops like cannabis, if you're doing it correctly, you're going to be utilizing significantly less water than, than a lot of other traditional farming practices. And it, people think of aquaponics as using a lot of water because it is water uh, as the main base, but it, it, actually it's not. I, I guarantee you, even with all the work I've done to improve soil, cover cropping, composting and biology, I, I irrigate my garden uh, to a level that exceeds the amount of water that I have to add to an aquatic or an aquaponic system. It, 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 exceptionally. So, especially if you were to take it out, uh, yield per pound of biomass, it's, it, it's not even a comparison. 
Um, we were talking about AI. Let's pull back to a little bit because there were some people bringing up some stuff about AI. Sure. And, you know, I've never said it's perfect. Can you talk about maybe some of the current issues with it? Sure. So I can tell you, at least with ours, um, we're trying to add additional um, new methods as far as uh, uh, how to um, uh, create a lot of these inputs. But on the back end, back end AI side, it mostly has to do with data management, trying to make sure that we have everything structured in a way to where it's going, OK, do this, then this, then this, then this. So first off, um, did they ask uh, and give us a location? You know, did... Um, what, you know, okay, what crops did they choose? What are the nutrient requirements for those crops? What plants in the area that they're asking about, you know, so kind of adding more of those data sets um, for those different data points into the back end. And then also, too, sometimes um, when we merge some of these databases, we have errors and things like that. We've had, I know one of them we had to redo like six or seven times before we were able to get the nutrient data to merge between the like six or eight different sources that I had put together into one central database that had like that plant and then okay this source had this level for nitrogen this source had this level for nitrogen uh, and what part of the plant um, and trying to get that all into sometimes can be a bit of a pain when you're dealing with huge enormous data sets um, that's kind of been a little bit of an issue and then once in a blue moon for whatever reason we've had some issues with like language stuff not quite working properly um, where it wasn't converting the language the way that we wanted it to. Um, it was giving the right answers. It just would sometimes say, I can't do that um, in terms of giving the answer in Spanish. But if I asked it in English and then asked it just to change the language to Spanish and give me the same answer, then it would work. Um, we Again, this is stuff that, that, that particular one we fixed. But um, that's been kind of some of the weirder errors that we've run into. Um, uh, only one time have we ever really got it to, to, to break completely where it gave us a really wonky answer, but it was just giving us, it looked like code. You know what I mean? It was obvious. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't uh, giving there it There was a, a question answer. earlier, has it ever done basically what they call hallucination? Like sometimes chat GPT doesn't know the answer, but instead of saying it doesn't know the answer, just invent some random crap. No, actually it won't. Um, it, okay. We have some safeguard. Well, I'm not saying that it's impossible, but yeah, it's only it only knows data that we've put into it, so it's not just randomly pulling from GPT for answers. It won't do that. Like I got you. It, 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 so it won't ever like run out to the normal GPT and be like, okay, well we're we're totally stumped. Let's go to the other thing. It only knows, so it'll say, oh, I don't know. Okay. Um, if, if it can't do it, or um, like for instance, there was one other thing that somebody just mentioned, and and um, and I thought of it, and I, I can't. I just lost it. As far right. as, I'm trying to think as far as hallucinations go again because it's built off of hard data it, it yeah. it's it's not it doesn't work like normal GPT it'll it'll not just it. you know because there was like you know, it doesn't there were loopholes in GPT when it first really got popular and one was called the Dan loophole and you told it it was Dan which stood for do anything now and it could do all the things that its programmers said it couldn't do. And it would freaking do it. But it didn't know what the answer was. So somebody did the Dan thing and asked it who Jack Spierko was. And it said that I was the actual leader of the New World Order. And it made up this entire story about me and whatever. And it was it was funny as hell. But it was clearly like this thing's just and actually see a lot of people pointed to that and said, look how look how stupid this is. And I was like, that's actually kind of cool. You know, because it is it is a hallmark of an intelligence. To, we don't want it from a tool, but it's a hallmark of some form of intelligence to make shit up. 
right? Like, because like it's one of the things that I laugh about my grandson. He'll start just telling you this incredibly detailed story. And, and about three lines in it, you go, this is bullshit, but I'm going to see where this goes. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, it knows all the different nutrient levels for all the different organic inputs that anyone's ever, you know, basically put into documentation that we have compiled into it. So it's utilizing those as its pool. And then it knows the different methods and techniques and the SOPs for those different preparations. So it's kind of saying, okay, here's the, pre here's the um, recipe that we're going to use in terms of um, A to B to C to D to E to F. And then here's the nutrient pool of options for your ingredients. And then it's kind of combining those two to do that. So it's not going to like invent a plant that doesn't exist and give you a nutrient value like, because it, it has to get it from a, this pool or this gotcha. pool and then combine it. So that's why it doesn't hallucinate as much. Again, I'm not going to say that it it's impossible, um, but the likelihood of it is extremely low because it has all this hard data built into it. And it's only working with the hard data that we've given it. It's not, you know, other than how it wants to create the recipe um, that it has some creativity with. Right. So it, it can flex around that or come up with new ideas. For instance, it does nutrient infused IMOs. Yeah. That's you mentioned that. Like it anywhere. came up like, I'm going to take your IMO and your nutrient infusion. I'm going to put them together. Exactly. So it's, it's considering the nutrient values of the grains that you would use for IMO three and IMO four and things like that. So, you know, and, and kind of helping tilt the scale for, so, so it, it does do some creativity on that, but it, it, it has to pull, pull the data from one of the sets of data that we've already given it. So because of that, it doesn't hallucinate very often. Um, I will say that we definitely need to refine some of the pest control stuff to be a little bit more up to date with more biocontrols. It doesn't have every single species of biocontrol in it yet. That's something that I'm working on fixing right now and a couple of other things like that that we're actively moving towards as well as we're moving towards making it multimodal so anyone that doesn't know what multimodal means is right now it's just text-based but pretty soon we're going to have photographs and allow you just to kind of give it other forms of data um, we're also going to be adding the text to, or to speech and the speech version only so that you can just talk to it and you won't have to um necessarily even read you know you, you can just listen and, and get that type of stuff so that's some of the stuff that we're currently working on right now and um uh that's one of the reasons why we're, we're um, looking for a few more people that want to you know be part of early access to kind of help us fund this uh or if you're you know someone out there that's really into ai and are really into gardening and you have a lot of resources and you think you'd be awesome part of the team please reach out to us you know we're always looking for new members we have about 14 people on the team including some international lawyers and some other stuff like that to help make sure that we can protect this and make sure it can't be ripped off and stolen um, just like the uh, the plant protections we want to make sure that this is uh, you know once it's launched uh, in the in version one that it's free and available to everybody um, before that we're offering it to early access to people that want to help support us um, if you want to support us through early access you can and then you You'll also have access to all future versions, you know, kind of in a preview beta version. Um, every time you come up with a new big upgrade, um, everyone that supports this will have access to that first before it's released for free. Um, the idea is to make this a free resource. Um, we're just trying to uh, to cover our server costs. None of us get paid. Um, every single member of the team gets paid zero dollars per year. Um, we, we're solely doing this based off of a, a, a passion and love for trying to democratize this information. And frankly, you know, if you want to punch Monsanto or Syngenta in the dick, this is how you got to do it. You punch them right in the wallet. That's that's what you want to break them. This is how you're going to do it. I, it's, it's I can't think of any other way to, to change the world on that level. 
do you think the the full version of it as you develop it and mature it will will really be able to be available for free? And the reason that I ask that is I'm all for the sentiment behind that, but AI is very resource intensive. Every time you make that one little query, there's some GPU spinning their ass off somewhere and they don't spin for free. So uh, as you move toward a free model, will it kind of be like a free plus an upgrade or something? Because something's got to pay for those that equipment to do that processing. Um, I think a lot of times people you know, think, oh, my computer doesn't really cost me any money after I bought it. But I promise you, if you didn't use it, you'd use less electricity. Computers are electrical machines. Sure. So we're, we're um, one through the early access where people that want to pay to help support the program are helping basically cover those server costs, which is basically how we pay for 50 percent of our current server costs. Myself and one other member of the team is paying currently for the other half of the, the server costs that were you know, to kind of make up the difference between um, what it costs us and, uh, and and what we have you know, income coming in right now. So um, I think that if we can get a few more people, I think we can e easily cover that. And then also just have a donation button on there too. You know, hey, if we helped you out, kick us a couple bucks. You got five bucks this week. You got, or hey, we just did all the math for your farm. What was that worth to you? Please, you know, make a donation yeah. so that we can continue this. So um, with, with that kind of thing, and then also we're just putting out a couple of other cool tools and stuff like that. And again, doing a similar kind of early access model to to people that want to support us and, and making it, you know, having those those small percentage of people being able to kind of cover the back of uh, the financial backing of, of the rest of it. And, and we're also looking into grants right now and, and some other resources. Um, we have a, a Native American tribe right now that's really interested in funding this uh, in order to uh, help, you know, improve the the financial sovereign or food sovereignty of their their um, nation um, in Oklahoma, I, I'll leave their name out of it at the moment until they're ready to do the public announcement. But they've been another per, a group that's been helping us, um, you know, get this through because they're looking for a way to educate their kids. There's a lot of kids in reservations that aren't really super stoked on on farming right now, but if they had a tool like this where they can make it quickly part of the education curriculum and have access for teachers to come up with and manage the gardens or to have easy, much more easily manage the ranch lands for their property or more easily manage their, their vegetable gardens in a way that aligns with their values, which, you know, Native Americans and ranchers, everybody loves the land, right? They really passionately care about the land. And then some of the fiercest defenders of, you know, uh, uh, good practices, right? So this is the kind of stuff that we can absolutely work together on and make some new inroads and bridge some gaps culturally that we otherwise wouldn't that, you know, Hey, we're all on team, make the world better. We're all on team, feed our local community. We're all on team food sovereignty. This allows us to kind of do all that work together without necessarily having to, you know, talk about things we don't disagree. You know, we don't agree on. Yeah. I'm going to have to get you guys after we're off the air with this hooked up with a gentleman uh, out of the Bitcoin community named Guy Swan, who has a second podcast called AI Unchained. This is so up his alley, and he may actually be able to help you guys reach some more people in that space of AI itself. And one of the things is I'm thinking about the finances here, and what brought him into my head is a long time ago, he did an episode where he was talking about integrating lightning with uh, artificial intelligence so that people that don't want a subscription can pay per use for it because you can instantly transfer value to the tune of two cents, right? So like, uh, and you could even build an integration with other tools that use APIs that instantly charge and have instant settlement. And that's outside this discussion today, but it's just something for people to think about because 
if we want tools to work like this, everything can't be free. We either need to be donating or paying per use or something. But, but that model makes a lot of sense to me because if I'm somebody and I just want to know what to do this year, I'll pay you five bucks for that, but I don't necessarily want to sign up for a $50 a month subscription to do that. If I'm a consultant and I'm going to use it regularly with my clients, then 50 bucks is nothing, right? So I think we need to like, but that's, that's elsewhere uh, to figure out down the road. I do want people to help support this. And I know there's people in my audience that will. I can see the excitement in some of these people right now. James pretty much, I think, found it and said signed up. But yesterday I said, hey, in your notes, I don't have a freaking link to the tool itself. And you said don't publish it publicly yet because it's kind of a beta. So is it a like, is there a, like, is it invite up? Are you okay with maybe a link to it in the, the show notes today or, or what? Sure. Uh, let me, uh, I'll put the link up here for, uh, for anyone that wants to jump on. Um, Oh, there we go. Uh, here it is. Okay, so if anyone's interested in, in participating, getting early access, um, you can check us out on Patreon uh, at Copyleft Cultivars. Um, you can also reach out to us uh, at copyleftcultivars.com if you're interested in registering your genetics. Uh, you go through that. If you want access to the AI, um, we have a couple of different tiers depending on what you want. You can pay as little as $10 if you don't have extra money um, to get access to the AI. Um, if you have the money, we really um, ask if you can give us 20 bucks. Um, that's even better. But if you don't have it, you know, you can get in for 10 bucks. Um, and that'll give you instant act early access to the AI. We also have, uh, and we're, um, I was hoping to have it ready to show off for your episode, but we couldn't quite finish it in time uh, for the public uh, release, is uh, a full phylogenetic galaxy as well. So as more and more people um, register their lettuce, tomatoes, peppers, and whatnot, it'll actually create a 3D genetic database, and you can see how your heirloom tomato from your grandma is related to this other guy, to Jack's heirloom tomato, or to you know anyone else's heirloom tomato, and you can see how the genetic evolution of those different ones that are all registered through the open source database are done, not only for cannabis, but for vegetables and fruit trees and everything else as well. Struggling with here, like I have, it, it literally started out as jalapeno M, which is one of the best known heirloom jalapenos on the planet. And I have selected for two things, early turning red and being big. So I grow these freaking jalapenos to get about this big for those off the air, about as you know, longer than your thumb. And they're big around and they turn red way early. Um, but how would, like, do I send, like, if I wanted to participate in this, do I take this organism and send it somewhere for, like, how do I actually get that genetic code from my 10 years of selective breeding into that database? Because that, I love the idea, but I don't know what it is. I just know what the plant looks like. Sure. So you, you sign up through Copyleft Cultivars, and then we'll tell you based on who it, what type of crop you're sending it to, which of our, our partners that you, you send okay. it off to to get sequenced. So for, obviously, for cannabis, um, you have to stay within the same state to, to sure. be compliant legally. And then for vegetables, obviously, we have a couple of different centralized ones. So you just go on to the Copyleft Cultivars website, and um, and then you can go, the uh, you know, find we'll, – we'll reach back out to you with the, the correct person to send it to. Um, in fact, we're uh, Matt's going to be – been helping us this year with his Matt has a micro pinning DNA sequencing machine, which is uh, is quite incredible. Uh, but you can check it out here at copyleftcultivars.com. Um, we also have our freedom bag tag, uh, which is under our preservation. 
Um, so you can actually also print off this freedom bag tag uh, and put it on any seeds that you, you distribute through your local stuff that says, um, you accept these freedom affirming uh, terms uh, by opening the seed pack. You're free to use these seeds in any way. So long as the, to preserve freedom for all, you don't restrict others use use of the seeds for their own pro and progeny and will include those terms with any transfer of seeds and progeny. Uh, submit any gene sequencing and SMP data derived from these seeds and plants to Copyleft Cultivars nonprofit and published via the copyleftcultivars.com. And, and people are free to, to put this disclaimer right on their stuff. And then um, once they, you know, have it sequenced, uh, if they sequence it or someone else sequences it, uh, if it's in our database, um, that'll be automatically, you know, applied with the digital contract. So um, it's really a, a wonderful uh, methodology. And, um, you know, even if you're you're doing it before you're able to send it in, you can start to, to protect your stuff, you know, as long as you intend to sequence it afterwards. This is how we take control, folks. You don't ask, you don't beg, and you don't vote. You take, right? Every person that ever wasn't free that became free made a choice to seize freedom. And this is doing it on mass, on, on a level that we should all be able to agree with unless we're part of the cabal that doesn't want it because we're talking about being able to feed each other. And, and, and then using technology that can be leveraged and, and let's say it's only 90% right. Well, it's still about a thousand times better than you're going to do on your own. And I had no idea there was even a way for me to access genetic sequencing of plant cultivars I've worked with. I, I didn't even know that was a thing that that in of itself is mind blowing. And so I'll make sure again, we have these links available. Um, can, can you just talk a little bit more about the, you keep mentioning these guys, coffee left cultivars. And, and their mission, because it sounds like they don't have a mission. They have a lot of missions. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Copyleft Cultivars, like I said, was kind of founded after the uh, uh, a kind of a disaster in the cannabis industry. And we kind of all they originally had part of the the group that didn't do too well, um, that, that was causing some legal issues, had part of uh, a kind of a, a 501c3 that was designed to do this type of preservation work. Well, when that whole thing got screwed up in, in you know, a big legal debacle, um, we had to kind of create a new version of it that was clean, didn't have any of the weird hangups with the company, you know, corporation that was tied to it. So um, they created this 501c3, which is a, a nonprofit called Copyleft Cultivars. Um, they work a lot with Native American groups and, and heirloom seed groups and, and basically anyone that cares about food sovereignty and seed sovereignty um, we're, we're happy to be part of it's why we we're really excited to talk to your community um, they're a different group than we normally uh, work with with the cannabis crew but at the same time you know we all are, are trying to preserve our genetics so that they can't be exploited by corporate interests so at the end of the day we, we align a lot more than we realize and um on that, you know, the cannabis community and, and the, the, the food sovereignty movement. So, uh, I think that there's a lot of room for, for those two teams to kind of become a, a force of good and, uh, and really, you know, change the world in a way that, that, um, uh, people, uh, might not otherwise think of. So Copyleft Cultivar's, uh, goal specifically is to have an avenue for this open source registration of genetics, be it cannabis or vegetables or fruits or trees or whatever it is that's important to you. Um, you know, flower varieties, whatever it is that you want to do. If you have that, um, to the level where it's legally protectable, um, we're, we're happy to, uh, to have that as part of our database. Um, they also, we also have the phylogenetic, um, galaxy, which is what I was talking about. Where you can see what 
plants are related to what, what heirloom varieties are related to what, so that you can say, oh, well, actually, the, the variety that Jack has is related to this one that Kelly has over here, and they both came from this this area of Europe, you know, or, or wherever originally, and you can kind of trace that back in a way that's almost like, um, you know, human genetics uh, in terms of finding out where you're from. So, um, or, hey, look, this plant in in Canada has this cold tolerant gene that also we found in Washington state or wherever else. And, and Hey, look at the, the differences and how this one gene is really affecting the flavor or whatever. By having this all into a phylogenetic database, we can start to pull apart those genes and see, okay, well, does my variety have this? Oh, I didn't even realize it was super cold tolerant, you know, but I can see that mm-hmm. the other ones do. So it allows you to start to make some of these connections. Um, you know, be it again from cannabis. Well, let's see why it isn't. You and I have this very similar plant. They have a lot of genetic similarities. And mine, let's say, uh, is an early variety and yours is a late variety. Well, there's one or two things in there that change that. And that's like, that's instead of genetic engineering, what it is is predictive breeding potential, right? Which is, you know, the, the big conglomerates, I hate that they patent things and all, but one of the things they're doing, it's a hell of a lot less evil than taking the genetics of a fish and using a, a, a gene gun or a virus to infect a cotton plant with it, which is something they've literally done. And then they say, well, it's not food. Don't worry about it. And you look at your thing, it says cottonseed oil, right? Uh, like, but they're also, they've started to move toward more of this where they like, Instead of like doing 7,000 different combinations, we can look at what's already there and predict the one that will give us what we want. And that's pretty advanced technology. But what I see coming out of this eventually is, hey, Stephen Reisner, you need to talk to this guy, Bill, in California, and y'all need to crossbreed this thing you have. That is freaking phenomenal what that can do for humankind. Uh, Tom here in the chat said, I think he's underselling it, and I think you are. Absolutely. Well, it's it's a complicated thing to kind of explain to people, especially if you aren't a plant nerd, why this is so important and, and kind of all the, the potential it has for food sovereignty, especially when you combine it with an AI tool. Now you have the really cool heirloom varieties and you crossed it with the other guys. Now you have all the resources you need to grow that and, and succeed. So, you know, combining those three different portions of it, um, both the plant protections, the ability to kind of better understand the genetics that you have and, you know, uh, the, the best ways to grow it organically in an easy to use way, all in one source. You know, they all are things that align very, very well and, and, um, you know, can allow us to kind of, again, by having early access and things like that, help fund the, the little bit of money that we need to kind of pull these off uh, in a way that can be transformational. Uh, and again, it's certainly the coolest product I've seen for AI. There's a lot of gloom and doom and a lot of things that people think of negatively with AI, but having it solve food sovereignty in, in this whole new way, I think is a way that we can kind of use it for a force of good that people don't really realize yet. Yeah. And I think that the, one of the most important things is this is very pioneering I haven't heard of anything else like it. And I'm not saying within food. I'm saying anywhere. It's something that I've talked about. Guy Swan has talked about, but nobody's really done. You're doing it. And I think it's a lot like the the four minute mile. You know, for years and years, it was impossible. Nobody would ever break. And one guy did it. And then like in the next six months, like eight more people did, because once it was apparent that it could be done, then it was like, well, then I'm going to go do it too. And I think there's so many places that we can rest back control and make it available to people 
that this is just one of the most important ones because we all got to eat. Um, if I could, before we do uh, some Q&A here real quick, sure. you talk about your experience at, at, at the fall workshop we did. I, I don't know if you knew what you're in for when you got there. It is kind of unique. And I like when I have a guest on, that's bit, especially when they've only been to one so far. Uh, to get like the expectation versus what you real like it is. I, I try to explain it and it's, it's, it's a very difficult thing to explain something that is real world and emotional and a little bit spiritual and very people use the word community to the point where I don't think they understand what it means anymore. Like it is a community, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's kind of, it reminds me a lot of the really hardcore um, cannabis uh, uh, breeders uh, events that where you have like this, the same hundred, to 300 people they all really passionate about what what it is that they're there to learn about and they're all willing to trade knowledge everyone's very like you know open book about whatever it is that they want to teach and uh, it was a really cool experience i know i had an absolute blast i look forward to coming back again this year and um i know i learned uh, quite a few different things there was the other gentleman i can't remember his name that was another permaculturalist um that spoke before matt i can't remember his name yeah, that's who it was. Yeah, that was a really, really great talk. And, um, uh, uh, I definitely look forward to, uh, sharing some interesting, uh, beverages that, uh, that I've had the chance to, to acquire over the years uh, around the world. So, uh, that, that was a fun part of it as well. And, um, uh, really, really good food. Uh, uh, you and your, your miss are a great cooks and, uh, really, really appreciated that. And, um, was just a, a different, uh, different than I thought it was going to be. It was much, much more, um, uh, uh, diverse in terms of ideas and concepts. And I had a, a learned a lot of different things that, uh, uh, I didn't otherwise know about, about the community. So it was a lot of fun and the barter blanket. I'm definitely bringing some, some fun things to the barter blanket this year for sure. Yeah. Well, you're definitely always working, man. Let's see if we can hit a few questions here. We did some along the way. Um, I, 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 we kind of hit that. That's copy left. Cultivars is the the people behind it. But is there a, a specific name for the tool itself? Sure. So the the specific name for it is called our Natural Farming Fertilizer Assistant. Uh, is the okay. name of the actual AI. Um, we will be putting it into a phone app and stuff like that here in the future. Uh, again, we're we're more focused on making sure that the thinking part of it is is uh, is completed before we start to to make it into uh, to other forms. But that it is coming in the, in the first quarter of this year. Uh, along with a couple of other additional features. And then we're hoping to, um, to later roll out some, some more stuff. We have a whole pipeline and, and roadmap for what we're going to do with it. We just, uh, you know, we have so many, so much time per week and, uh, and all of us are doing it on volunteer basis. So, uh, sometimes, um, we get done more weeks than others. That's all. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, Evelyn asked us, and I think she might have been a little confused, but I'll make sure that I, I gave her an answer, but I'll let you make sure I was right. She was talking about the lab when she asked this question, the lactobacillus stuff. Can I just make the use the whey without adding sugar? I think she was getting a like IMO2 or you put it in a kind of stasis or something because she mentioned brown sugar and osmotic action. And I said that, that we weren't talking about doing anything about putting anything in stasis at all. We were just talking about basically making curd and using it right away. Uh, and you had mentioned, and it's something I've tried and it worked really well, was using the rice wash for it uh, and, and doing it a little bit different. 
Yeah, so the only time you would really use sugar with labs would be if you want to preserve it. So say if you had a really cold climate, you're in Canada or something like that, and it's real cold, um, you would create whey during the spring and summer and fall, and then you would cut it 50% with sugar and then dilute that. Now, the reason why you use sugar for, for preserving labs or for IMO is so that you can shelf stabilize it. So you can basically take a collection like every week during your grow season and then stabilize it with sugar at a fit, you know, equal ratio. So if I had, um, uh, 500 grams of, of IMO, I would put 500 grams of sugar. I'd put about 510, 515 grams of sugar, to be honest with you, a little bit more sugar as a casing layer just to lock mm-hmm. out that oxygen. But basically the sugar is locking out the, the oxygen through osmotic pressure. Um, then it allows you to basically scoop it up and then brew it up like a tea to kind of wake those microbes back up. Um, the Vikings actually used to do this similar methodology, believe it or not. Um, they would take the really good, healthy soil from their garden, pack it into a ram's horn, oh, yeah. and cap it with wax on top, and then bury it below the frost line. And then when spring would come around, as soon as the ground would thaw, they would dig that up, take the wax cap off, and then sprinkle it onto their garden. Well, they thought they were putting like the garden spirits down, but actually they were doing re-inoculating it with IMO. So, that's a, uh, that's a uh, biodynamic uh, technique and it, it sounds like hokum because it has its roots in this idea that we've captured the spirit. But if you are in a time where you don't know what microbes are, what else would you call it? And I don't know that they were wrong. I just think that maybe we take it wrong. Like, yeah, what they're doing is they're preserving this biology in a way that it can then be reintroduced and accelerate. You're stacking in time is what we say in, in permaculture. We're we're accelerating that liftoff phase in the early part of the year. And because I know the first time I heard, well, you take this horn and you put the dirt in it and you, bear, and you dig it up on the solstice or whatever. And I'm like, this sounds stupid. And then I thought, well, if I don't have a phone telling me what the date is, right, and I need to time things by the seasons, well, then the salt and, and if we all celebrate the souls, have a big party, get drunk on mead. Good time to dig my horn up. And <laughs> that all and it all of a sudden it all made sense. And I think that we can look back at a lot of the ancient technology and we see it as primitive and it's not primitive. We just don't understand it. We're judging it in 2024. and It was cutting edge when they were doing it. And it damn sure works. Oh, absolutely. And again, a lot of this is uh, people have figured this stuff out a long, long time ago. Um, we're just kind of uh, refining it or better understanding why it was that, that it worked that way. And that's really the key of natural farming is none of this stuff is new. A, lo- a lot of these methods we've been using for a thousand years or more. It's just maybe we refine them a little bit more or we can put them under a microscope or we can quantify them through DNA sequencing and now actually understand what's going on or maybe tweak it to where we can maximize the yields of it. Um, and, and that's all we're doing is basically with the AI, for instance, taking, okay, here's the, the, Nitrogen-rich plants, the phosphorus-rich plants, the potassium-rich plants, the magnesium-rich plants, the whatever, whatever. We're combining them in the exact ratios because now we can quantify that to make a fertilizer solution that has a mineral composition that is similar to the Jax 10-10-10 or 20-20-20 that you'd buy at the, the nursery. And and by having that level of refinement and being able to dial those nutrient ranges in, now I can say, okay, well, I'm actually going to get a decent yield when I, when I switch to my natural farming methodology rather than going, gee, I hope this will work. You know what I mean? Um, but I can I can make a predictive method, uh, 
uh, educated guess based off of, okay, here's the input, co the content of the parts per million going in. This is how it converts. This is how it comes out when it's utilizing this method. Now I can make sure I dial it into a similar range that I would use with traditional fertilizers so that I can guarantee those yields will be, you know, in that proper range that I'm looking for. So Bill says, do you have a book, Stephen? Have you ever written a book or you say, hey, check out my site, my, my YouTube channel? I have almost 500 pages written of an aquaponic okay. book uh, I'm working on right now that has every single thing that you could ever want to do for aquaponics. I've grown pretty much every crop. I've probably grown more different crops in aquaponics than anyone else currently alive right now. I've certainly had more nutrient PPM data than anyone else currently alive right now on aquaponics because of cannabis. We were testing all of our stuff every other week. Um, when I, I used to run the research and development lab for the aquaponics source for multiple years. We grew a huge number of different crops there. We were my sole job was to basically figure out which um, we wanted to make aquaponics more commercial. So we grew a bunch of different high value crops, basically trying to figure out a model that would kind of help take off commercially for aquaponics. So I have a lot of different weird experience growing cactuses, fruit trees, mm. uh, you name it. I've grown it and have pictures of it in aquaponics. So um, there's pretty much nothing I've never been able to figure out how to grow in aquaponics. It's a matter of setting up the root system the right way. So right. Is, it is it a dual root zone? Does it need to go in a media bed? Does it need to go into a tree, you know, a tree barrel? or, you know, just, just tweaking how the roots are set up. You can grow anything in aquaponics. So, yes, you can. Um, so uh, the, the book I have is it has all that, has all the nutrient data tables, all the pest control methodology, uh, has all of the microbial preparations. Um, it just kind of covers everything. I also cover all the different uh, stuff that you'd run into in a store. So if you go to a hydro store, um, uh, here's all the active ingredients. Which ones of these kill fish? If you put yucca extract in your, your system, you will kill every fish, even at one or two drops, even if it's the size of an Olympic swimming pool. Like if you have even just a, you decide to do wicking beds and you put in the wrong type of soil and it has yucca extract in it as a wedding agent, you're going to kill all the fish in minutes. Um, oh, wow. The number one reason why I get phone calls about, oh, my whole system died. It's usually yucca extract or other wedding agents that are soil conditioners that people pour in the system or happen to be in the nursery pot that they bought and then transplanted into their garden. So wow. um, these, these are all types of stuff that people don't even realize. But I want to I feel fortunate that I've never wiped out a, 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 a fish system now that you've said that because I – I don't really buy a lot of potting soil or something like that, but I, I certainly at times when I get behind, I'll go out and buy plants. And uh, I never even thought of that. I, I didn't know it to think of it, that you could kill fish with yucca extract. And there's probably some Indian somewhere that that was a fishing method. And that's why we, we, we even know about it. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, the Yurok and the Hoopa Indians and in, in, uh, the west coast of, of California and Oregon. In fact, I lived with the Yurok for a bit when I was up in NorCal. Um, one of the, the co-hosts of my, my aquaponic cannabis class, he's a Hoopa Indian uh, partial from Hoopa. They both used yucca extract. They'd squeeze the yucca roots, create a concentrated juice. They put it into a clay vessel. They would evaporate it off. And then during the salmon runs, they would have the whole village go downriver about half a mile. And then the one guy would walk up about a half a mile to a mile, pour the little, you know, vase of, of yeah. concentrated yucca extract, and it would stun or kill all the fish. They would float to the surface, uh, and then they would, um, you know, the whole village would basically scoop them off the surface, and then they would dry them, and that would be their fishing for the whole winter. They could smoke all of that salmon uh, during the salmon run, and then now they had enough meat to get through the winter. So that that's the, uh, the origin um, of that. The origin of that. Yep, absolutely. Wow. So, 
this is the type of stuff that you have to be careful of with aquaponics that, you know, neonicotoids are another one that can kill your fish really yep. easily. And, and I know and that. Yeah. 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 There's things you got to be careful with plants. Plants don't want to be eaten. So they have ways of killing you. Like it's something like 99% of all plants on the planet are poisonous to eat. Right. And there's, so you, we're working with the 1% that aren't, and it doesn't mean that there's not some components in there. And you mentioned growing, you know, uh, different, almost every crop in aquaponics you can do uh, almost anything with aquaponics. But you mentioned the container and that and the method. That's really important. So I like I'll tell you one thing I did that I advise nobody to do. Uh, I grew some of I grow a, a purple skin variety of sweet potato an Okinawan sweet potato. The potato is actually the, the, the tuber itself is yellow, but the skin is like a purple red. And I stuck one slip in an ebb and flow bed and it worked, but I'll never do it again. I grew about 40 foot of vine out of it and I ended up with hair roots to completely, totally it took over a 50 gallon uh, ebb and flow bed. And so I grow them now, but I like I do uh, in, a, in a, like a flow through wicking bed model and they work fantastic in there. And again, it wasn't that it didn't work. It's that, the the results of it were not what you wanted. And I think so a book like yours would be really good. Uh, Hunter's asking about when the AI came up with a solution of its own, did it work? Uh, he asked us what's the percentage of it being correct. I think that's subjective at this point. You're building this tool. But that idea that it came up with, did you actually implement it and did it work? Oh yeah, yeah. You get uh, it. Absolutely, did come out with an uh, uh, IMO three and four that had much more um, nutrients than we you would normally have using traditional methods. So it's a matter of just combining known knowledge more than in, inventing things itself is mostly what it's doing right now. Like, just like you talked about, it only ha it, it knows the different pools of knowledge and it's combining them to create new things, not necessarily. Um, getting too far out of the box on its own so yeah. very very cool someone's asking when the jack gpt is coming uh and I, i've kind of said you know we have this this uh encyclopedia of over 3400 podcasts and with with translation technology and with um uh, what's the word i'm looking for uh transcript technology that's something that could happen someday but i got other things to be doing right now uh, Le Petit Chardon says, have you worked on any data for growing microgreens? And I know this person, they actually have a microgreen centered business. I have uh, some of their freeze dried microgreens in my kitchen. So I have not actually um, tried it. I mean, we can go ahead and try it together if you want to on, on uh, uh, yeah. microgreens. But I have a lot of experience personally doing microgreens. Um, in California, we had a, a business in, in San Francisco that we did quite a bit of, or part of the one aquaponics facility I was working with was dedicated just to microgreens because yeah. they have the market to purchase them. You have to be near a high population center or a tourist area that's going to buy them because you have anywhere from a 24 to 72 hour window for most microgreens. Some, some of them are a little bit longer than that, but a lot of them have a very short selling window. So if you don't have buyers that can immediately buy them up, you can't sell it and now it's too old and, and that can be a big problem. So that's kind yeah. of the biggest issue with, with that. But, um, we have, it, it doesn't currently have a ton of microgreen data built into it, but it definitely, yeah. um, somebody uh, that wants it to build it too. Right. You know, I mean, that's the other thing. That's a different vertical. Um, I have done a lot of microgreens integrated with aquaponics and, 
usually it's just basically a shallow tray and when they're ready to be grown out they go in there and they're on a time pump and it gets flooded and drained a few times a day to make sure it doesn't dry out and that's worked fantastic for me but then the system's already functional i mean so um I know the guy that I know that does the most of microgreens is named John Dowie, and he has a, a site called Dowie Farms, and he's selling mostly to restaurants, and and that gives him a guaranteed book of business. And as he's adding customers, he's literally growing to the customer because it's quick turnover, fast, high dollar. It's a, in some ways, it's a little bit like the cannabis market. You're selling in grams and things like that. You know, when you hear him talk, you're like, the dude's a dealer. But he's growing, you know, he's growing micro basil and sunflower and and, and, and and corn in absence of light and things like that. Um, but it's actually a, a pretty cool industry. Um, but I think, you know, we're hitting a world where not everybody's going to do everything uh, there. But it's uh, it's all, it's a it's a way to grow a lot of food fast. I will I will give it that. Oh, yeah. And, and it's one of the only crops that you can get. This the same square foot you know, return as cannabis or similar. That's for sure. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us today. Um, I'll throw it back to you at the end. If there's anything you want to add, but I'm going to take all the stuff we've talked about, add it to the show notes that are already done. And when I publish the audio version of this, uh, that'll be there. So if you're watching the video and you're like, I missed this or that, or I want that link, uh, again, give me about 30 minutes after we shut off here. And then there's a link right down there in the video. And if you're watching in the future, you can use it right now and get on over there and you'll see a place where it says Stevens links underneath the standard links we have in every show and all that stuff will be there. So Steven, you got anything else before I let you go? Sure. Yeah. I thought I'd give everybody kind of one, the, the recipe that we gave at your workshop, if they want to okay. uh, have that. So um, one of the things I taught at the workshop for Jack's was uh, how to make IPMO. So this is a pesticide that you can use on your property um, do not spray bees directly with it. You will kill bees if you directly apply it to their body uh, foliarly. If you spray the plants on it and the bee lands on it afterwards, they're fine. Just don't smother them with it basically is the point um, because it will inoculate the bees. Um, it won't kill your hive or colony or anything like that, but it will kill the bees that you spray it on. So I will forewarn you with that. So you're going to take rice. Uh, so we're, in this case, we're going to take 700 grams of rice. Uh, and then we're going to take 300 grams of insect frass or locally collected insects. If you've got a bug zapper or you got kids that you want to pay a nickel uh, every, you know, 10 grasshoppers or whatever it is that makes sense for you to collect your, your insect parts or purchase them online. Um, you can get the chicken feed and other things like that that are insects. Uh, so, But you need to have an insect or chitin-heavy uh, um, uh, source. You can also use crab meal or lobster meal that will also work. So you're going to take 300 grams of insect frass or insects or crab meal uh, and 700 grams of rice. You're going to mix that together, and then you're going to cook the, the rice until it's about 80 85% finished cooked. So like al dente pasta kind of thing. You're going to take the cooked insect parts and rice. Uh, do it outside unless your wife is particularly into insect smells. Um, most people's aren't. Um, <laughs> and then put that into an open basket. So like a basket you use for mushroom hunting that has some open spaces for the spores to fall out. That's the kind of basket that you want to get from your local dollar store or Amish shop or whatever it is you got near you. Um, take that, fill it up about five, four or five inches with your insect frass and rice mix. Put that out into the forest with a screen on top just to keep the squirrels and the mice out. Uh, and then put a, a plastic cover above it, maybe 
four or five inches so that the airflow can get around it, but your rain can't get directly onto the rice. Um, you can use a dog food bag, trash bag, whatever it is. You're just trying to keep it dry is the, the point. You're going to put that in a, a forested area of your property or just the area that's disturbed the least. that has a lot of leaf litter um, and, and um, you know, uh, duff from the, from the forest uh, or, or local plants. That, that's what you're after is the microbes that are in that particular thing you're going to put that there for five days now what's going to happen is you're going to get all the different spores and fungi and other things that feed on both the rice and the insect exoskeletons the chitinase um, uh, the chitinin which produces chitinase when it's broken down by the fungi so once we have that collection after five days, we're going to take that, we're going to put, bring it back to the house, we're going to weigh it on a scale. So we're going to assume that it's, you know, 1,200 grams uh, because the fungi added weight to it, um, just for the sake of argument. Uh, now we're going to weigh 1,200 grams of brown sugar uh, or raw sugar. Either one's fine. You can use bleached sugar. It's better if you don't, but if you're in a pinch, you can if you absolutely have to. Um, and then mix that together. And what will happen is it will go from this dried fungal material into this like wet, liquidy solution, like almost like a syrup solution once it starts to, to, to combine. And you'll notice it will get wetter and wetter even though you're not adding anything to it. Uh, once that's fully stabilized for three to five days, now you can take scoops out of that whenever you want, throw it in a five gallon bucket and, you know, just one giant, you know, big tablespoon scoop, throw it in a five gallon bucket, uh, brew that up with air stones. Uh, and now you can utilize that after three days, two to three days to, uh, put it out onto your garden. Now, generally we do about it two days. If it's colder, you do add an extra day, depending on your temperature. Um, now it should smell like winter green or winter fresh or, or, or something like that. Um, every single batch that I've made always has that kind of wintry, winter green, minty kind of smell to it. Um, that's how you know that it's working really well. Uh, then you can strain it and then apply that foliarly to your garden. You can kill grasshoppers, um, blister beetles, which are a huge problem for people in the in the central part. You know, Texas, Oklahoma, they get in and cause blisters and all kinds of stomach problems for your goats, chickens, cows, things like that. Great way to get rid of them. Uh, leaf hoppers, Japanese beetles, um, you know, any of your larger insects that are normally very hard to treat with, um, you know, traditional chemical methodologies or biocontrols, it just annihilates. It totally saved my butt in Africa when we had the, the grasshopper swarms that come in like clouds. We could get out there, spray them with that, and five days later, they'd be all on the ground covered in white and, and basically like, you know, toxic the next you round. Show some pictures of it. It looks like mummification is what it looks yep. like. Absolutely. Yeah. They get covered in this white mummified fungal tombs that just wipes them out. And a lot of them it'll kill within 24 hours. Sometimes it takes, you know, two to five days depending on the insect, but it will infect them and wipe them out and you can eat the stuff. I mean, I, I drank some uh, liquid IMO at Jack's workshop to show everybody how, in fact, a bunch yeah. of the students did as well. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone, you know, still survived and made it to their plane ride home. And, you know, there was no problems. You can't do that with anything else that's going to have this level of impact in terms of pest control. Um, so you don't have to worry about your kids, your livestock, your dog. It's not going to hurt anything on your property. If it runs off into the fish pond and, and you have, you know, fish in there, it's not going to hurt anything. We use this all the time in lettuce aqu aquaponic systems that, you know, have, you know, very fragile fish. You don't have to worry about that. So it's something I wanted people to kind of have as a takeaway. And um, they can check out the exact recipe in the on the workshop video on, on Jack's channel. Would well. it be a threat in an aquaponic system doing crustaceans of some sort or a 
aquarium system because I heard you mention chitin. This is something I need to look more into. I heard about chitin years and years ago. It was like a weight loss fad because it sucked up fat in your gut and took it through. And then as I've been doing research, as I've been putting together this course on cover cropping, um, I heard a gentleman, I think it was Gabe Brown maybe, uh, talk about it's used as a soil amendment. But it's basically the components of the exoskeleton from shellfish. That's why you said if you couldn't get the bugs to use something like shellfish meal. Um, so if you're tra- basically you're cult- if I understand this right, we're cultivating microorganisms that will literally eat the exoskeleton. So there's some people asking questions here and I'll basically, you know, what well, does it work on this or that? These different bugs or whatever. If it has an exoskeleton and you spray it, yeah, it's going to die. Like, but if it's, sprayed over here and then it lands there a couple hours later. It's not, it's a contact killer. But to me, that would mean if like, if I used it in some way and it got into an aquatic system where I have like, I have billions of neocardania in my systems, billions of them. And, And so to me, it would seem that they would be susceptible to that. Now, I haven't tried it with neocardinias or cardinias uh, or other um, shrimps and things like that. I have noticed that it doesn't seem to have much of an impact on the seed shrimp and the filters. Okay. Um, So at least on that regard, I can say that it doesn't seem to have an impact, but I could see it potentially having an issue with crayfish or or neocardinias or cardinias. That I would say it's it's definitely a potential, but uh, it's not something that I've observed, but I I don't want to say that it wouldn't happen. Oh, and that reminds me, I need to get with you on getting some of these, some kind of little crab you have in your systems. I want those suckers. I don't remember what they're called. Some kind of little crab you, you mentioned when you were here. Yeah, so the, the Malaysian spider crabs. There actually is a freshwater spider crab that looks just like the saltwater spider crabs. They're extremely profitable. I mean, they used to, when they first came out on the market, they were about seven or eight bucks a piece. Um, they've, the, they're not the easiest thing to breed. Um, yeah. So, um, there a lot of people. They, the price went up to like thirty, forty bucks a pop. But Holy in an aquaponic system, you have a perfect. It's basically like an enclosed pond. It's perfect for breeding. Same thing you yeah. have with the cardinias. It, yeah. It's this perfect environment, so you absolutely can get a pretty good return on those guys. Um, the Malaysian uh, spider, freshwater spider crabs. Because yep. the way I started doing the cherry shrimps, the, the neocardinias, is, is I was actually breeding for pretty. And I was reverse calling. I was taking out all of the, the, the stuff that wasn't as, as bright red or bright blue as I wanted. And I was just throwing them in the summertime into my system. And I figured, well, winter will come and they'll die. And I'm sure some of them did. But now I've got these hardened off, hardy, like I've got ice on top of my systems right now. And they're swimming underneath it. So I, I, I'll bet you that those little crabs would go crazy in those systems too. Oh, yeah. There's somebody in chat asking about um, lanternflies. It does work on lanternflies. We've used it for that on the East Coast. Okay, cool. Yep. Like I said, if it's got an exoskeleton, it gets sprayed with this. Like that's why he was saying, like it's 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 a non-selective thing. So don't spray your bees with it. So if you need to spray uh, your garden and you have a pest problem, most of us that have bees around, we've noticed there's times the bees come and the times that they're not there. They like to coincide with flow. Uh, and different crops have flow at different times of day. So you need to kind of identify that timeline or you're just going to, if you spray a bee with it, it's dead. It'll, it'll just, and, and gone. And you might have a few friendly fires, but it beats the hell out of nicotinoids and, and other things like that. So anyway, Stephen, man, this is one of the most informative shows we've ever done, which is what I expect when you're on. Uh, I really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And I, I look forward to, to coming back soon. Uh, 
and uh, and talking maybe a little bit more about aquaponic chemistry next time. Uh, I really appreciate you giving us the platform to kind of tell people about the AI today and and about the copy left movement. I feel like we have a lot of alignment with the the wonderful yeah. viewers of, of your show, and uh, we're all on feet, you know team food sovereignty and uh, and these types of tools are going to help democratize access to that education and make it you know available to everyone, be it the, you know a farmer in Montana or a guy trying to feed his family in Zimbabwe. Um, we can all learn uh, and, and from the same type of uh, AI. Yep, yep. Thank you, thank you a great deal, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, I think we've already got you booked for the other show, so we'll have you back on soon. All right, folks, real quick before we go, I want to remind you of a couple of ways you can help the show and the work that we do here. Uh, one, I don't think I've ever said this uh, publicly, but uh, the new uh, composting class, the guy that does all the back end work for it, Tom, who's the guy that does all the stuff that, that keeps TSP on the air for you and maintains my servers and uses words sometimes I don't understand. I just say, just go do it. Uh, he's the guy that's, that, that's done all the back end work for uh, the bioreactor compost, composting course. And of course, you can find that at homefoodsystems.com and, and just know Tom gets a pretty good chunk of every sale. So if you want to just not support me, but support the guy that kind of keeps everything running uh, and you want to learn how to make the easiest and best compost you'll ever make, uh, consider signing up for the bioreactor composting course. And uh, it, it really is, again, we, we charge very little for it, 40 bucks for it's cheap, but it was our first course. We're still tweaking some things. Tom's the one taking care of things. When people are like, the answers to the quiz don't make any sense. Turned out we had a randomizer on in the LearnDash system so people couldn't cheat. We're not really worried about that. So if you had an answer like both both B and C and it was the right answer, it didn't work once it randomized. So he's dinking on things like that. So it, it's not perfect, but it's gone good. Uh, next up, remember, you can always find all my product reviews of everything that I've used or I recommend in – uh, on my website, or you can shortcut to that listing at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, this is one of the few items in there that I don't own or haven't used directly, but uh, I've sold hundreds of them. And the only reason I ain't bought any of them is I've got beds that aren't being fully used yet, but I'm never going to build a wooden bed again because I can't do it for the price of these things. This is galvanized steel uh, metal raised garden beds, 125 bucks for a four by eight, two foot deep. Uh, bed. And you might wonder, how can they ship that? Well, it ships in panels. You bolt it together. This was the top selling item by revenue for me uh, as an affiliate on in uh, 2023. Uh, sold over 300 units of this, and I have not had a single complaint by a single person. And I promise you, when I recommend something and there's the tiniest problem with it, I hear about it. So I don't know if I'll ever buy these for myself. Every time I look, I, you know, I look at them a little bit lustfully, like I can figure out a place with two of them. I got four beds sitting completely non-being utilized right now. I won't let myself buy anymore. But this is winter. It's time to start building your bed out, your beds out for the spring. This would be a great way to go. Uh, I like buying things that I only have to buy once and never have to buy again. And and these are pretty much outlast. I don't know about everybody in this audience, but at my age, you probably last at least as long as me. With that, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I got to tell you, Stephen is one of the most awesome people I've ever met. He's an incredibly giving person. I highly recommend you subscribe to his YouTube. 
Check out copyleftcultivar.com as well. I'm going to have links for everything in the audio notes in just a bit. Thank you for tuning in today. Tomorrow will be an expert council show, so it's not going to be live stream, but I might live stream my segment tomorrow. It'll be short one or what have you, but I've got something kind of cool to talk about tomorrow, so maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. You'll have to stand by to find out. Remember to wait, make sure you never miss a live stream opportunity, whether you show up or not. Know what's going to happen and what it's going to be about. The number one way, all social media and all talks about it, but the Telegram group or the Telegram channel. I publish it every day within probably two hours of when we're going to go live, what it's going to be, who it's going to be about. And you can look it up for yourself at TSPCLive.com as well. Take care, guys. Catch you tomorrow. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.